0: Hello and welcome to the Nada Cast, cast the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B Fish, and
1: I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to our 23rd episode of the Nada Cast, entitled "The Grass Sea," an analysis of the Game of Thrones Daenerys Three, in which Daenerys Targaryen sails the Dothraki Sea, has more prophecy and world building thrown at her, and gets a bun in the oven. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zack. Thank you all, gentlemen, very much.
1: Thank you, as always.
0: And as our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all five published books, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter's Table chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything.
1: We're very excited to say that we have a returning guest to the podcast this evening. You may remember him from our Brand 3 episode, as well as, of course, all his excellent content on his own. The High Priest of the Cult of Starry Wisdom, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, <laughs> a.k.a. David Beers. Welcome back, sir. Hey there, Emmett. Hey, Jeff. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me on.
2: We had so much fun last time, oh, yeah. and uh, so many people had so many nice things to say that uh, I guess you guys decided to invite me back.
0: Yeah. we we, we had, Which is awesome. We had a blast doing Brand 3 with you, and... All that symbolism and mysticism and all the interesting, wonderful things about Brand 3 made you the perfect guest for this episode, which is all about mysticism, symbolism, and a chapter just dripping with freaking emotion, man.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's a great example of the way that Martin unites the mythical symbolism with the emotional uh, building of the characters and their hearts in conflict, just like we talked about with Bran and the basic terror of a falling dream combined with the idea that he can't walk and he can't wake up with the more mystical things it's all swirled in together. And this is another example where Martin's using the mystical elements to build Danny's character in more
0: ways than one, which is something that we'll talk about. Oh yeah. Can't wait to get into that with you, man. So we're really happy to have LML back with us again for this episode. And we can't wait to talk about all the wonderful things that we're gonna be talking about here, all the mysticism and everything. So, as we do in every podcast, we have a number of questions from our Sworn Sword patrons on Patreon. That is, for those who contribute $10 or more a month, you have the opportunity to ask us questions. And we got a number of great questions this week.
1: Yes, indeed. Our first question comes from our Sworn Sword patron, Lady Erin. And she asks, Though I was into the books before the show was a glimmer in D&D's eyes, I'm pretty new to the wider fandom. I found Emmett through his amazing Season 7 recaps on Deadspin. Thank you. And started following him on Twitter, so forgive me if this question has been talked to death in the fandom. (laughs) What do you think Cersei Lannister's story looks like going forward from A Dance with Dragons? In Kevon's last chapter, I think we get the sense that Cersei might be playing the game a bit differently now after the walk, but whenever I bring that up, most people seem to think that she's too stupid to play the game with any skill. I would be interested to hear your thoughts on the matter. Thanks again, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much for the kind words and for your question. I'll throw it to our guest first. LMO, what do you think? What's going to happen to the Mad Queen going forward in the book? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, she does have a certain low cunning, as uh, Tyrion (laughs)
2: says. It's a perfect way to summarize Cersei. She, as Littlefinger says, she thinks she's a player, but she's really a pawn. Uh, But these things work in layers. So she is a bit of a player, and she has other pawns that she manipulates, although she herself is manipulated by other forces because she's not smart enough to prevent that from happening. And uh, so she's somewhere in the middle. (laughs) She's definitely clever enough to pull off schemes. However, she's paranoid and a little delusional and very narcissistic, and so all these things prevent her from being as good of a plotter and a schemer as she could be.
1: Yeah, I yeah. think that summed it up perfectly. Cersei's main problem is that she's incapable of viewing any other human being as a human being. That that keeps bringing her up short over and over again, whether it's dealing with Jaime, whether it's realizing that the Tyrells, although they can have competing interests, are ultimately her partners. Yes. That's why she can't really see Orion Waters' betrayal coming or Tyena abandoning her coming, even though those are both very obvious turns of events. So, yeah, I think that's going to. I mean about Cersei being stupid, I remember the the John Mulaney line, just because you're accurate doesn't mean you're interesting. Like, yeah, Cersei's <laughs> not necessarily the smartest player, but what's interesting about her is kind of the anger and desperation undergirding that, and I think that's that's going to go to some really interesting places now that she has an undead uh, bodyguard on her hands. And I'm going to be very curious to see how she reacts to the arrival of the Sand Snakes in King's Landing, specifically Nymeria, who's going to take a place on the small council. Uh, Cersei might despise her, or Cersei might uh, be interested in her, consider her an ally going forward, perhaps, you know, Aemir gets into her confidences before betraying her. But I think, regardless of the shenanigans Cersei gets up to in King's Landing on her own, ultimately, I think her story's leading to, you know, downfall, her last kid's dying at the hands of someone associated with Aegon's rise, Aegon taking King's Landing, uh, and eventually the Veloncar theory coming true. So, I think she'll surprise people with a couple interesting decisions while in power, but overall, I think her story and Wins is gonna be, uh, one-way ticket into the abyss, a lot like Catelyn and Storm of Swords. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask uh, Emmett real quick, do you think that the Sept of Baelor
2: will go boom uh, in the books as well?
1: That's an interesting question. That might be one situation where they combine a couple of things or, you know, bring aspects of different stories together, because part of me really thinks Danny's going to be somehow involved with wildfire going off in King's Landing in some capacity, uh, or okay. at the very least dragon fire. So, Part of me wonders sure. whether in the books like Cersei tries to do that and it gets interrupted by Jaime and then Danny actually sets it off. That would be really interesting and dramatic. There's been a lot of setup with Cersei in the wildfire, though, in the Feast for Crows especially, though. So I yeah. think, at, at the very least, I think Cersei tries to make something go boom. I don't know if she's necessarily the one to make it happen, but there's definitely going to be some payoff to that connection. What do you think, sir? I, I think it's going to blow up, too. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I, I think that symbolically
2: there's a lot of foreshadowing of that happening, yes.
1: Oh, yeah. Comparing her to Aerys and how much she's into the fire, yeah. I mean, there's even the dream of her on the Iron Throne with everyone laughing. Yeah, there's mm, mm. There's, there's, there's strong setup for that there. And how do you and I'll
2: ask this of Jeff, because I guess this is more of a Jeff question. (laughs) Um, How do you think Cersei gets out of is it going to be a trial by combat with Gregor and who does he fight and what happens after that? How do you see that playing out?
0: See, that's an interesting question, because I was 100 percent confident that we would see a trial by battle in the Winds of Winter. But then in season six of Game of Thrones, the High Sparrow throws a curveball at the whole notion right, of right. trial by battle by banning it, by saying that it's an unfair practice that only the nobles are allowed, which is true. All of that is true. It's a true statement. The thing is, is that I think that Martin is really wants to have a trial by battle where you have Ungregor exposed. That seems like that'll be something we'll see in the winds of winter where sir robert strong will be exposed as as uh, as kilgain or undead gregor kilgain
2: he'll he'll take a wound that should kill him and he'll just like shrug it off and everyone will be like what the fuck or like his helmet will come off and there'll be nothing Yeah,
0: i favor the helmet thing actually more <laughs> than anything else is that it's, the helmet comes off and you have the um uh, where gregor kilgain's all blue and the face and obviously dead and this is horrifying to all the people um i've i've always and, and i know this question wasn't asked by by lady aaron but i've always wondered if the trial by battle goes on what who is going to be the opponent of Sir Gregor Clegane. And my money is actually on Lancel Lannister. Um, I think there's a there's a bit of cool foreshadowing where Lancel th- thinks that Jamie has come to kill him in a Feast for Crows, Jamie Four. And he's—it's mentioned that the white cloak is—he's always imagined Jamie coming in his white cloak to kill him—and I think that might foreshadow that the white someone in the white cloak is going to kill him, and that person being Sir Robert Strong. I know there's been other mm. more minor characters thrown out, but I think Lancel would be an interesting character to be fighting against Cersei, given their background, or against Cersei's champion, given their background.
2: But yeah, I, he'd have to be—he'd have to be so hopped up
0: on faith that he's. Just off his rocker In order to do that Right Well think about the, Think about it this way There's The High Sparrow Is, is a very f- Interesting political actor He might want to Kind of throw The match right Because one of the things That comes out Is that the Faith Militant Is allowed to rearm Because of Cersei Lannister Has had the decree Signed by, by Tommen if Cersei Lannister loses the trial by battle, then it throws into question Tommen's legitimacy. Because one of the things that she's accused of is incest, right? Is that one of the accusations that's thrown at her in, in A Dance with Dragons? Yes. So yeah. it, then, of course, Tommen is no longer the king in the High Sparrow's Eyes. And if Tommen is no longer the king, does the writ that he signs, does that become invalid in, in that case? So you might want right, to throw, right. throw the fight there and have someone like Sir Lancel, who is barely walking at this point, be, be the champion of the faith and... I mean that's that's kind of Machiavellian, but it also seems like something that the High Sparrow would no, do. No, it
2: makes it makes sense. That makes sense because what what he'd want to do is get rid of Cersei and keep Tommen in power right. as a pawn that he can manipulate. And so he doesn't want to delegitimize Tommen. Uh, and so if he throws the match, uh, Cersei's Cersei uh, Tommen stays in power, and he's not he's not an incest baby right. officially in the sight of the gods. <laughs> and um, but then the fact that the Mountain won. Uh, makes Cersei less popular. Right. And so it continues to help the High Sparrow undermine her popularity and eventually oust her, right? Yeah, that's my take on it anyways.
1: Yeah, I agree, especially with that last part about the sight of the mountain just stomping this, you know, faithful, spiritual young man without even a fight. That doesn't necessarily make Cersei look good. Yeah, and I agree, especially early in Winds of Winter, the High Sparrow is gonna have this balancing act where he wants to capture the Lannister regime more than outright destroy it, because at this point he doesn't really have another option. I think once uh, Young Griff's campaign continues to be successful in the Stormlands, once Jon Con takes Storm's End and kind of proclaims his prince openly to the realm, then I think the Sparrows are gonna start thinking a little differently about who they want to back, especially once it comes out that Young Griff is trained by a Scepter. So I think at that point yes. the High Sparrow might be looking to jump ship entirely, but I agree. Early on, wins a winner. That's not going to be the case. He's going to be looking to, uh, as you said, um, you know, keep Tommen under his wing while uh, trying to cut Cersei out. So I think that'll probably be his interest. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to give a hat tip to Jeff's
2: uh, uh, series on Aegon. What was the title? That's Blood of the Blood Conqueror. of the Conqueror. One through,
0: yeah. 1 through uh, 24 or Yeah, it was, it was about 29 parts, I think, in total. 29 <laughs> parts, yeah.
2: It was great, and uh, after reading it, I came away convinced that we were, we were headed for an Aegon versus Cersei showdown in King's Landing for the throne, uh, which will probably go in Aegon's favor, I would think. Uh, that seems to be where it's headed to me. I mean,
0: you you have the, the foreshadowing embedded in Danny's fourth Clash of Kings chapter in her House of the Undying of... Having the Mummer's Dragon being cheered through the streets by the small folk, I think that's very much something we're going right. to see in the Winds of Winter. And then having you know Aegon crowned at Baylor's set, provided it's still standing, is something that I imagine the optics are going to look really awesome for, for oh, Aegon. Oh, yeah. hold
2: on, hold on, hold on. What if Aegon is crowned at the Sept of Baylor and then it's
0: blown up? <sighs> see... I, I I can s- dig it. Just, a ra- I, I just dig a I, I, I dig idea. it and I don't dig it. And I'll tell you why I don't dig it more than I dig it. Because I, I dig the I dig the symbolism and I dig like the, the whole thing of, you know, from season six, that great scene where everyone gets blown up there and ta to- and and Tommen commits suicide thereafter. But I think George has also talked about a dance of the dragons happening. If you have Aegon getting yeah. blasted by Cersei or by Daenerys, then there's really no Dance of the Dragons to be had after that. Now, maybe, now this is something George has said, you know, 12, actually more than that, like 15 years ago, like we'll be seeing this, the whole second Dance of the Dragons is going to be the whole uh, plot line from the next book, which it doesn't, of course, because Dance of Dragons and A Feast for Crows do not have an actual Dance of the Dragons in it. But maybe he streamlines it all and says, "Okay, I'll just blow blow shit up and, you know, let things kind of fall out from there. Maybe he takes a page from what we saw in season seven and makes the conflict center uh, between the Lannisters and the Targaryens directly, uh, as opposed to Targaryen versus alleged Targaryen, I guess. I don't know. I've got I've got a lot of questions and and a lot of kind of headcanons and and different metas that I have going through my head. Sure, sure. Yeah.
2: Well, my favorite my favorite headcanon that I want to see is uh Darkstar Dane with Dawn as like a mockery of Arthur Dane in the King's Guard of Fagon, yes. who's a mockery of Rhaegar. I that has to happen. It makes too much sense. Oh yeah.
1: You've already got the duck as a pale imitation of Dunk connection, so I think that's probably going to be a recurring theme with Aegon as, as the the shadow of all these kinds of previous rulers. Like Renly is the shadow of Robert, but uh, really taken up to taken up to Eleven, so to speak. So, uh, thank you, Lady Aaron, for your question. We're definitely looking forward to all the crazy hijinks Cersei gets up to in Dance with Dragons. Jeff, good sir, do you want to take the next question? Uh, sure shall. So, Sir
0: Joseph S., another one of our Sworn Swords, asks, Well, Ned can be blamed for trusting Littlefinger in his adventure in King's Landing. I don't think we should be too hard on him overall for how everything eventually works out. Agreed so far. Ned is coming in at the 11th hour of three or four major long-term plots that are all reaching their conclusion. Renly with the Tyrells, Varas and Illyrio, Littlefinger, and Cersei's plot to kill the King. Littlefinger appears to have specifically maneuvered to get Ned to King's Landing, something we talked about in the previous episode, so he could take revenge. Ned has no allies at court other than Robert, who can't be bothered. He hasn't been keeping an eye on court and doesn't know the players, which maybe you could blame him for, but he wasn't really expecting to have to go in and didn't want to go when asked. The one person who could have helped him, who should have helped him, is Stannis. I like Stannis. I think that by a dance with dragons, he is acting as a king should be, by protecting the king to win the crown. But he could have saved Ned and his brother if he had just done his duty and stayed in King's Landing. He knew the secret, and instead of trying to do something about it, he hid in his castle, gave his brother up for dead, and sulked. He could have answered Ned's ravens. He could have left a message. He could have sent Davos to Ned. He could have told his brother. He could have done a million things other than what he did. It would have been dangerous, but for someone who expects others to do their duty, he seems to be neglecting his. I understand this, that there wouldn't be a story if Stannis had just told Robert and Ned, but Stannis made a mistake here. He was selfish, and it cost his brother and Ned their lives.
1: Criticism of the one true king in <laughs> our podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm getting faded.
2: Not, <laughs> yeah, where's I the if if we were on Twitter I'd be filling the chain with uh, mic drop emojis right now I think, <laughs> I think I think she just served you up some crow right there
0: Did he What do you What do you think What well, do you I'll think th- David I'll throw it over to you again You get the first dibs on this one
2: Well yeah I'll be quick I'll just uh, great points uh, Great points I d- I agree that uh, Ned ex- exactly Ned was coming in at the end of a bunch of plots He didn't have any allies Robert was completely like just blissfully non-aware of that dynamic didn't really help him, and uh, yeah, I mean Ned made mistakes, but all that's true. And I mean Littlefinger is a bastard, man. I mean he <laughs> lured Ned to King's Landing and then set him up the whole time. I mean that's that was extremely devious him and Lysa. Yes. So you really it's hard to blame Ned for a lot of that stuff. Um, I mean there's a couple little things you can you can look over because nobody's perfect, but. Yeah, I agree with that point, and I also agree, yeah, with uh, the idea that Stannis could have helped and didn't, and it is a little weird, and maybe there's something I'm not thinking of that you guys will straighten me out on, but it does seem a little odd that if he had become aware of the plot, he didn't go to Robert or try to help Robert, he just kind of ran and didn't return Ned's letters. Like, that does seem kind of like a chump move to me for the one true king, but...
1: (laughs) Well, I think, for me personally, I would separate into two questions. Why didn't he go to Robert, and why didn't he go to Ned? The former one explicitly comes up at uh, Storm's End in Clash of Kings when Catelyn, learning about the twin test for the first time, asks Stannis, "If you knew about this, why did you stay silent? Why didn't you go to Robert?" And Stannis says, "I went to Jon Arryn because if I went to Robert, I wouldn't be believed. He doesn't—he didn't trust me, and it would look like I was just trying to become next in line for the crown." Which, to give Stannis some credit, is him—you know—at least being aware of how this looks and trying to get around that possibility. He went to someone the king trusts that he trusts and tried to get it done. And that person got murdered, and Stannis has every reason to think it's the Lannisters. And not only that, but then Robert names Ned Hand, which is as much a signal as you can get that Robert, again, doesn't trust Stannis and isn't going to take him seriously. So at that point, I think Stannis is right to think that if he goes to Robert, he's not going to be believed and is, is, is just ultimately setting himself up for an ambush. Uh, the, the question of why he doesn't go to Ned is a little more difficult, because... Stannis already proved willing to go to someone that Robert trusts and share the information and try to work together. He did that with Jon Arryn, so the question becomes, why don't you do it with Ned? And part of that is what Varys says in Ned 7, that he doesn't know if he could trust Ned. Stannis, you know, hasn't seen Ned for presumably years. Uh, you know, King's Landing is a viper's nest, Ned, Ned just took this big position. Stannis doesn't know if he can necessarily trust Ned to share information either. But ultimately, as even Stannis fans have to acknowledge, the real reason Stannis didn't tell Ned is because Robert named Ned the Hand instead of me. <laughs> and why does Robert like him so much? And I'm his brother, but he wouldn't know it from how he... Just, so there, there is that insane, i did not get picked for dodgeball" kind of resentment with Stannis that is always <laughs> driving his actions to a large degree. And I think that did help me. I don't think it was as callous as Stannis is abandoning Robert and Ned to their deaths. I think it's more like Stannis feels backed into a corner and like he has no good options, so he pretty much just has to run. And it's also, keep in mind that Stannis doesn't know at this point that Renly is going to declare himself king and mm-hmm. take all the Swords of the South for himself, so presumably Stannis is, is going forward with the notion that he's going to have the Swords of the South ready to deal with, but yeah, it needs to be acknowledged that Stannis let that that chip on his shoulder lead him to not trust Ned, even though he sh- really should trust Ned. And you know, in fact, Ned ultimately goes down swinging for Stannis, which makes Stannis' comments in *Clash of Kings* about why should I avenge Ned Stark seem really kind of petty, yeah. given that Ned died for you to be king. So. Well, Stannis is a a little
2: bit of a bitch sometimes. I mean, let's face more it. More than a little and, bit. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and credit to your your candor there. It started off as what I would call a kind of half-hearted defense of Stannis, but then it it sort of all of a sudden took a left turn into very (laughs) frank candor there at the end, so I give give you credit. Um, I think that Stannis, though, is, that's the whole point about Stannis, is he's not the knight in shining armor. He's not perfect. Uh, He's somewhere in the middle. Uh, He's kind of crappy sometimes, but he sort of finds his way a little bit as the story goes on. There's a little bit of an arc there. Uh, especially hinging around you know, Davos convincing him to go and actually do his duty as king instead of just <laughs> claiming his rights to be king. So I think we're meant to be shown a little bit of an arc with Stannis where yeah. he's sort of getting a little bit better as he goes. And I have to hope that we'll end with him doing something fairly heroic in the Battle of Winter so we'll have a nice ending. Yeah,
1: I think Mart- Martin is really good at knowing just how far to push Stannis. To the point of where you're like, okay, if he takes one step further, I'm not going to be able to relate to this dude at all. And then pulling him back right at that moment, which is a really delicate operation. I get why it doesn't work for everybody. And I think the show kind of teetered too far over that edge. But I can't blame him too much for that because I think it's a really delicate writing job. And I think if... If Martin wavered a little too far one side or the other, no one would. Uh, there wouldn't be as much of a fandom as there would be for the character. Yes, some people know when not to push Stannis too far. Some people don't.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: true. True. Which you know mirrors mirrors the in-universe Stannis fans perfectly. Good Stannis fans should be like Davos, where you recognize the best part of him. And try to save him from himself and empower his best you know. You don't want Stannis fans like the Florence. So that's, that's you, that's Emmett. You're you're
2: you're the good Stannis fan. <laughs> um, that makes me the yeah, bad yeah, one. Yeah, right? was it, was it that obvious that I was, just, <laughs> I was trying to describe myself there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean you know we'll let you the standard decide. All are, right, we all who's stri- the bad are we not Stanis all fan?
1: striving to be like Davo Seaworth? Is he not the the moral north star of the series? Him and him and Brienne, pretty much. Fandom, what do you think? Send your thoughts
2: to at Brendan Beefish <laughs> on Twitter. Great. Uh, how do that, you man. think his Stannis fandom rates on a scale of one to obnoxious?
1: We got a friend on Twitter and a patron of the show, Frank B, who uh, who I dearly love. But is I I, I love having around Stannis conversations because he makes me look moderate by comparison. <laughs> he's, he's such an attack dog. <laughs> That I just let him loose and stand back and look look perfectly reasonable by comparison. So it's it's very useful to have him around. Bless It, your it heart is. Is
2: he's uh he's your other favorite Republican besides Jeff, right?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> he's, he's one of you people that I that I deign to talk to because 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 for some reason a lot of Republicans like Stannis. I'm not going to think whoa, about that whoa, whoa, whoa. any more you, than you I have just, to. You didn't just you What do you mean you people? <laughs> I'm, I'm you people and Jeff, not you, but. I, I know.
2: Oh. What do you mean, you people?
1: I know. I know your politics are reasonably sane, so okay. don't worry about that. Yeah, everybody,
2: everybody knows my politics. I think.
1: So, as the bad Stannis fan, as an, on
0: the obnoxious side of the of the Stannis fandom, more on the reasonable side. The Emmett's I'm its reasonable side. Uh, there, what we call a Stannis stand. Right. Exactly. Although exactly. I do have some disagreements with Stannis, and we've, we've talked about that, and we do talk about that in our uh, Stannis Patreon episode. Um, there's a couple like minor, more minor questions in there that I thought we'd quickly address before we move on to the next question. It, he asks if he had just done his duty in stayed in King's Landing. Well, if Stannis had done his duty in stayed in King's Landing, he was in a position where he didn't know who had actually killed Jon Arryn. He was also in, uh, in danger himself, and he could have been threatened and killed there. He knew the secret. Instead of trying to do something, he hid in his castle. That's true. He gave his brother for dead and sulked. Also true and true. He could have answered Ned's ravens. Mm, Maybe not. And the reason why is that if Stannis is sending ravens from Dragonstone, who is actually reading the messages before they get to Ned? Pycelle. That's true. Who is Pycelle? Pycelle is a Lannister toady through and through. So that's kind of out of the question there. He could have sent Davos to Ned. This is actually more of a meta thing than any than anything else. But Davos Seaworth as a character was not originally in the cards for Martin. He actually invented Davos Seaworth when he was writing *A Clash of Kings* because he did not want to make Stannis Baratheon a point of view character himself. He just invented Davos to be the character for Stannis. So we, that's kind of a meta reason why Davos. He didn't send Davos to Ned. At least in *The Game of Thrones*, there might be another reason that unfolds as the books progress. He could have told his brother, "Yes, that's true, I guess." Although, as Emmett pointed out, he, his brother wouldn't have listened to him because it would have seemed self-serving, as Stannis said in *Clash of Kings* to Catelyn. He could have done a million other things that what he seemed. Yeah, I mean, there's he makes good points, and I think that we've uh, we've addressed. I just want to talk a little about a little bit about some of those more minor questions that were brought about. Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't, why didn't this happen? And so forth and so on. So that, that's all I want to say.
1: I also think it's worth noting that I'm not sure it necessarily would have changed that much. Yes, Ned would have found out sooner, but look what happens when Ned finds out. His instinct is to go to Cersei and give her a chance. Something I admire him for, but also leaves himself and anyone he's conspiring with vulnerable to Cersei. So it might just be that Cersei launches her trap earlier, and that Stannis is possibly caught up in it. So again, that's that's not in and of itself excusing Stannis' decisions, but I wouldn't necessarily put a marker on this as the turning point uh, where everything where everything fell apart it might not have changed the thing because I think it's going to come down to Ned giving Cersei that information at the end of the day
2: yeah if I can make a meta writing point uh, you guys know one of my favorite topics is what makes George Martin great mm-hmm. and sure, of course. so I didn't What well, I didn't know that uh, Jeff that Davos was essentially created because he didn't want to make Stannis a POV that is fascinating yeah. to me as a writer because this is just a great example of like don't be stuck to your initial ideas. Like, you've created Stannis, you're the writer, you know, you've created Stannis, and you've got this whole idea for Stannis. But you you think, well, I don't want to, I need to do something, I need to change something. And so he had the fluidity to just make up this character. And look, it turns out to be one of the best characters yeah. in the whole series. So it's like, True. don't be afraid to try different things and change up your plans and just embrace like if, you're, if your writing needs something different and something needs to happen, just roll with it and like embrace it and find ways to make it work. And look at Davos. I mean, gosh, I'd hate us I just would hate to think of the series without Davos.
0: Yeah, it's um, just the, the quote from the So Spake Martins from 2003, it's George said that at first he was going to use the original POVs from a Game of Thrones for the entire series. Then he realized that he needed to see what Stannis was doing, but he didn't want to use Stannis as a POV. So he created Davos. Davos was his first added point of view. The rest followed. So, I mean, yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that. I think it would have been extremely difficult to try and tell the story that George wanted to tell and only keeping the original cast as, as, as it is right now, or as by the end of a Game of Thrones. I mean, you have Ned is already dead. Catelyn is going to die in A Storm of Swords. So that leaves only a few characters of the original left. And you wouldn't get a vantage point for things like the Battle of Winterfell and the Winds of Winter. You wouldn't get Volantis. You wouldn't get what's going on with all the different suitors trying to find Daenerys in a dance with dragons and seek after her. So I, I think it's a good point that you bring up, LML, that Martin can't be but can't be limited by what he had already envisioned. He has to expand out and improve as he goes on.
2: Basically just to say it simply, like that's how you if you're gonna be a gardener, that's how you do it. Like that's how you garden. You, you see a need for a change, and you just openly embrace a new angle. You make up a new character. You just roll with it and let your creativity fuel the character, and you end up with Davos. Absolutely. And, I mean, Davos is such a unique perspective. Both from the fact that he's from Flea Bottom, he's lowborn. The fact that he's smuggler, he's on the wrong side of the law. Most of our characters are nobles, highborn people. And even though Davos gains a title, it never really sticks to him. He's always still Davos the smuggler. Davos shorthand, you know. And I just, man, I, what a great character. The perspective and the emotional tone that he brings. Like for me, the whole Azor Ahai myth being presented as Salador-san saying it to Davos, with Davos's initial reaction being, wow, I couldn't stab my wife if the whole fate of the world <laughs> depended on it. It's in a really important counterbeat to the myth itself, which is telling you the true hero has to stab his wife and work blood magic in order to save the day. And you're like, that's a little fucked up. <laughs> and you have Davos going, yeah, that is a little fucked up. And Salador-san's like, yeah, be glad it wasn't the real thing because the real thing is pretty terrible. Yeah. So... Without Davos, it just wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened the same way. So, wow, I'm just, okay, let's move on. Great there.
1: And now our final question from Old Sadie. She asks, hello, boys. My question is, and I'm hoping LML will have a mythology-based answer, would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck, and why? Take it away, LML. Well, a 1,000
2: duck-sized horses would represent the meteor shower, <laughs> while one horse-sized duck would represent the moon itself. <laughs> And so, if you fought the moon size, the horse sized duck, and killed it, it would explode into a thousand thousand duck sized horses anyway. So you might as well just go ahead and start with all the, the, the duck sized horses
1: and cut out the yeah. <laughs> well said, do. sir. Jeff, counterpoint? <laughs> uh, none. <laughs> For me, it's pretty clearly hundred duck sized horses because you can just keep kicking them away all day. They're not going to team up effectively. They don't have opposable Straight- thumbs or nothing. <laughs> A, a horse-sized duck Strength is of the horse,
2: go into the duck. <laughs> Strength of the horse, go into the duck.
1: Horse-sized duck, though. I mean, I know ducks aren't, you know, sent from Satan the way geese are, but still, I mean, one, one poke from that particular large beak and you're done for. So maybe it's just, maybe it's just my fear of, of horses in general and my desire to get vengeance on them in their smaller duck-sized forms that's coming through, because uh, I'm not a fan this? of the equines in general. They're scary. They can hurt you and kill you very easily without without even paying dude, attention.
2: A horse-sized big.
1: duck is one step away from a velociraptor, dude. That is no joke. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They're going to get to that with the next Jurassic World sequel. I think they're desperate enough. We've already had team <laughs> up with raptors and team up with raptors on Volcano Island. So I think we're just we're nice. working our slow way like I love how like you know Spielberg and Lucas and James Cannon were basing their stuff on 50s B movies. But making it bigger and huger, now we're just working our way around to 50s B movies again. We're just we're just coming back. It's just gonna be all bad Godzilla movies within a few years. And I just I, I love personally those movies. cannot wait. I know you do, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we just need a big old rubber suit, and we'll be good to go.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It'll be cost effective too. So. Yeah, so those are our questions for the week, and we appreciate all the questions. We did get a couple other questions, and we will be utilizing them for our next episode, so we appreciate you uh, you guys who have sent other questions as well. Thank you all very much. And just wanted to announce that our next Patreon-only episode will be all about Volantis. Old Volantis, new Volantis, 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 Volantis. It's history, what's going on with it in A Dance of Dragons, and the future of Volantis, the city of Valantis. So... That'll be coming your way on July 26th, so stay tuned.
1: Yes, indeed. Volantis has always been one of my favorite settings in the series. One of the reasons is because it's got so much backstory and so many interesting things going on in the present day in A Dance with Dragons and so many uh, compelling possibilities of where it's going to go in the future. So uh, really looking forward to that. Again, if you haven't uh, checked out or taken part in our Patreon, it's at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But speaking of Volantis and and Essos and the great uh, slave revolution going on there, our POV today is the character at the center of all of that.
0: Yes, it is Daenerys Targaryen in her third chapter. And because we knew that LML was coming on, I, I had to get deep into this chapter, man, because I knew that he was going to be throwing all sorts of mythical astronomy of ice and fire stuff because this chapter is just dripping with it so i read and reread and reread again and did it two more times after that to try and fully wrap my mind around this chapter before writing the summary and of course in preparation for LML being on here and basically blowing our minds yet again on some of this stuff uh, so I f- So you basically, you, you read
2: it over and over again until you felt like you were tripping so that you would be in the right state of mind to actually absorb it.
0: Yes, exactly. Despite having <laughs> never done drugs in my entire life, that's how I felt at the end of re- reading and rereading this chapter. So. Oh, that explains so much. It does. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so I am one with George R. Martin and with Daenerys Targaryen. In that light, the summary could be 45 minutes long, but I'm going to try and sample a few places on the journey and hit the uh, plot and emotional beats as best I can. So, this is A Game of Thrones Daenerys 3. Daenerys Targaryen sails the Dothraki Sea with Khal Drogo's Calisarder back. We open Danny's third A Game of Thrones chapter chronologically to the middle late part of the chapter as Danny and Sir Jorah Mormont survey the vast green grassland stretching to the horizon. But it's not always green, as Sir Jorah tells Danny. It blooms with red flowers like a sea of blood in places. During the dry season, the sea turns bronze, but those are only the harana, one type of grass. Elsewhere, there are hundreds of types of grass lemon, indigo, blue, orange, and rainbow colored. But down in the Shadowlands, past the shy, there are oceans of ghost grass that murder all the other grass and glow in the dark with the spirits of the dam. Danny doesn't want to hear about death, though. She wants to enjoy the beauty of the land. Unfortunately, her enjoyment is tempered by the omnipresence of her brother Viserys, whose voice Danny can hear behind her. You see, Viserys Targaryen has decided to come along with Danny and the Dothraki to Vase Dothrak to ensure that the price that Khal Drogo promised is paid. And all this despite Illyrio's kind offer to Viserys that he can crash in his man's back in Pentos until the price is paid. A lot of questions there about that, there, Mr. Illyrio, but we'll talk about that later as well. Anyways, Danny is done with listening to Viserys' complaints, so she rides forward and orders Jorah to inform the Khalistar to reign up for a time. She descends the ridgeline atop her silver, thinking about how she never felt like a princess until she had that awesome frickin' horse, and this leads her down memory lane. Daenerys Targaryen remembers how miserable the first few weeks of the journey were, how all that riding had chafed her role during the day, how Drogo would ignore her until he came into their tent before sunrise to rape her. She was in such awful pain that she couldn't sleep, and she finally resolved to commit suicide rather than endure the agony any longer. Only then, that night, Daenerys has her second dragon dream. Daenerys and a black dragon, slick with her own blood, with eyes like pools of molten magma, breathed fire flame at her, which burned her and made her blood boil and turn to steam. But in the end, the dragon fire cleansed her, scoured her. That dream helped Daenerys to feel better. She found riding easier after that. Her legs were stronger, the blisters burst, and her hands calloused, and her soft thighs turned hard as leather. With her pain easing, she began to take in the scenery more, and she began to love the beauty of it. They crossed the rolling hills of Norvos, past the dead cities, raced down Valyrian roads, rode through the forests of Kohor, and though there was always an ache at the end of each day's ride, there was a sweetness to the pain, and she even began to find sexual pleasure with Khal Drogo. Zooming back to the present, Danny rides her silver through the tall grass, loving every minute of it, so much so that she dismounts her horse and takes her boots off, the better to feel the ground beneath her. And then Viserys arrives. You dare! You give commands to me? To me? Have you forgotten who you are? Look at you! Look at you! Danny looks and smells like a Dothraki, whereas Viserys, the Mad King's son, is wearing his rage and soiled city silks and ringmail. Not a good look, Viserys. He keeps screaming about how no one commands him as he's the Lord of Westeros, and he does that sexual assault shit again by reaching under Danny's shirt and digging his fingers into her breasts. In response, Danny shoves him away. Viserys is incredulous, stunned, and then even more angry. Danny knows that he'll hurt him now, but then the whip comes. Crack! Jogo, one of Danny's bloodriders, snaps his whip, and it coils around Viserys' neck. Eerie and Sir Jorah arrive on scene. Do you want him dead? Jogo asks, and Yerie translates. No, Danny replies, How about an ear? Can we take one of his ears? No, you can't, Jogo. Danny doesn't want Viserys harmed. The whip uncoils from Viserys' neck, leaving a line of blood. Danny orders that Jorah takes Viserys' horse. No, Viserys cries, Hit her, Mormon, hurt her, kill these Dothraki dogs and teach her. But Mormont doesn't. After a moment of consideration, he takes Viserys' horse, forcing him to walk the rest of the way, something that Dothraki consider to be shameful. Everyone leaves a humiliated, angry, horseless Viserys sitting in the grass. Danny wonders if he'll be okay. If he'll follow them. Jorah informs Danny that he'll make do and walk the rest of the way. Or barring that, the Dothraki will come and grab him up. It's hard to drown in the Dothraki sea, Jorah says. But Danny realizes what she did. She hit him, and now she woke the dragon. Right? Well, no. Rhaegar was the last dragon in Jorah's opinion, which is weird considering that Jorah didn't you fight against Rhaegar on the Trident. <sighs> And Viserys is less than a shadow of a snake. And what does that make Viserys' servants? But he's the king, Danny replies. Jorah asks a simple and vital question response. Do you want to see Viserys sit the Iron Throne? He wouldn't be a very good king, Danny replies. But the people are praying for his return. That's what Illyro says. No, not really, Jorah says. The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends. It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their game of thrones so long as they are left in peace. They never are. Well, that's something, Jorah. But hey, wait, didn't you enslave some small folk that one time? Yeah, more on that later. Anyways, Danny asks what Jorah prays for. Home, he replies. Danny prays for that too. Jora tells her to look around, and Danny sees something beyond the Dothraki Sea with her mind's eye. She sees Dragonstone, the Red Keep, King's Landing. In her mind's eye they burn with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all doors were red. Whew. Well, we're gonna dive we're gonna delve into that too, don't you worry. Anyways, Danny says that Viserys will never take back the Seven Kingdoms, calling it to account that he's a poor and that everyone hates him out here, even his one knight who swore him his service. Even if Drogo gave him an army, he couldn't do it. Chora calls her a wise child for thinking this. Danny says she's no child, and then she darts away on her horse. That night, Danny enters her tent and sees a finger of dusty red light reach out for her dragon eggs. When the light touches the dragon eggs, it bursts into a thousand droplets of scarlet flame to her eyes. But when she blinks, all those droplets are gone. Stone. They are only stone. The dragons are all dead. But when Danny touches the eggs, they feel hot. It's just the sun warming them on the journey. Or so Danny thinks. She orders a bath for herself. Her handmaids wash and talk with her. She wants to talk about dragons. Dragons are gone, Khaleesi, Eerie says. Her second handmaid, Jiqui, agrees. You see, the last dragons died in Westeros during the reign of Egg on the third Targaryen. But maybe there are dragons still out here in the east, where magic still exists, Danny hopes. Nope. Brave men killed the dragons in the east, too. But then Doria, the third handmaid and former prostitute, pipes up. A trader from Karth once told me that the dragons come from the moon. He told me the moon was an egg. Once there were two moons ooh, in the ooh, sky— ooh.
2: Oh, oh, I got, I, I got, oh, I'm I Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I was supposed to wait. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> we, we, we got you, man. We got a whole section for you, brother. We, we got you. Right here. Bo-boom-tsh. But one of those moons wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand, thousand dragons poured forth that drank the fire of the sun— one day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. The other handmaids dismiss Dorya's claim as foolish. The moon is god, woman, wife of sun. It is known, Eri says. It is known, Jigui replies. Later, Danny eats and asks Story to stay and eat with her. They sit talking for a long while. Later still, Khal Drogo enters Danny's tent, and Daenerys drops her clothes and tells him that they must go outside, for the Dothraki believe that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. So they go outside, and Daenerys Targaryen refuses to be taken from behind. She rides Drogo cowgirl style, and Khal Drogo calls out her name when he comes. A month or so later, her handmaid Jiqui tells her that she's with child. Danny knows. It was her 14th name day. And that is a not-so-brief summary of A Game of Thrones Daenerys 3, which, to paraphrase Rick McCallum, one of the producers for the Star Wars prequels, it's so dense. Every scene, every single memory, it all is heavy with, with meaning, symbolism, and emotion. What do you guys think about this chapter? Just general thoughts first. Well, I so I think
2: that to moon. With...
1: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we knew that was we'll get deep into the astronomy, good sir. Uh, much as I hesitate to agree with uh, Rick McCallum, star of the Red Letter Media videos on the Star Wars prequels, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, as as great as the first two Daenerys chapters are, they were really paving the way for this one, uh, which is it's expanding on that great moment in Danny Two, in which she rode her silver for the first time and forgot to be afraid. That kind of little dynamic, that little ascension is kind of writ whole across this chapter. And you could use terms like, you know, it's a maturation story or it's coming of age, but um, I think you guys will agree the, the the vividness of the imagery and the lushness of it kind of transcend it beyond those really trite genre signifiers. I mean, Agreed. the way Martin writes Dany and her relationship with her environment, it feels not just like someone coming into themselves but like like a god coming into themselves it feels like apotheosis like a grand transformation that's reflected back at her by nature from the from the grass of many colors as Jorah points out to the legends of the moons and the eggs and the dragons uh, as our guest is expert in uh all, all these kind of elements are reflecting her transformation and making it feel like uh, the change that's coming on inside her is happening in the world around her and that there's maybe not not too much of a border between those two changes I mean, we already knew that she was going to be the main character of this storyline, not actually from Viserys just because she's had the POV for the first couple chapters, but this is really where the author starts communicating a sense of Danny's significance as a character and what it what it feels like, her, her becoming one of the main characters of the story. The rebirth of the dragons, which serves as the climax of said storyline, and this is something we're going to talk about quite a bit, only hits home as hard as it does because of the build-up in these early chapters. It's not just direct foreshadowing, although oh, there, is, there is that and we'll get into that later, but it's the sense of becoming that hums through every word in this chapter. This is where Danny becomes the character we know. What do you think, LML? Initial thoughts, sir. <laughs> I want to thank Jeff for first
2: of all calling it rape. Um, I feel like as much oh, yeah. as I love all the symbolism about this chapter, it's hard to sort of talk about it without first acknowledging yeah. kind of the basics of what's going on and sort of just how difficult and shall we say problematic a lot of it is. Yes. It it definitely, I I think as as I was listening to you talk, it occurred to me that Danny with Drogo is essentially the same as Ramsey with either Jane or Arya or or Sansa in the show version, except for that Drogo's just nicer and he's not a sadist. Uh, But essentially, it's the worst version of the medieval idea that for women, you know, being betrothed is is only slightly better than being sold off into slavery. Uh, And a woman's ability to sort of protect herself in that situation is mostly based on the people around her and how willing they are to protect her. Uh, You see that dynamic in Winterfell a little bit, where it's like the fact that Jane Poole is crying out and people can hear is a big problem. Uh, and will become a problem and that's why Roose is talking to Ramsay he's like we barely have these people and they're loyal to the starks so she's she's got a tiny bit of protection and she's still getting obviously horrific treatment and with Danny here it's it's very similar she has no one really to protect her uh, but herself and, and so instead she has to turn inward and draw strength from her magical heritage essentially in order to begin turning her situation around uh, ...to where she's taking power and is no longer a victim. And that is what is trying to be portrayed here. Uh, basically, in this chapter especially, we see with the dragon dream... Uh, ...it's this pivotal turning point. Uh, it, the fire is cleansing her and transforming her and tempering her... ...and she comes out you know, different on the other side and everyone notices. And basically, this is her starting to become a dragon... And there's a great line in there where after she finally stands up to Viserys, who's another source of sexual abuse, uh, as, as Emmett pointed out uh, to Danny, you know, in a more sadistic way, but in a parallel way really to Drogo. It's like she's got these two powerful male figures in her life, and they're both sexually abusing her in different ways. She stands up to Viserys, and then she says to Jorah, you know, I woke the dragon, didn't I? And she's like, oh, and he's like, oh yeah, Viserys is the shadow of a snake. But Martin's actually telling us that Danny's woken her own dragon. She's the dragon, <laughs> and she's waking up right there into her own power. That's what just woke up, uh, you know, in that scene. So I'm glad you called it that, and I'm glad that uh, we, you know, we can agree on on seeing it that way. And, and at least we got to, like I said, mention that dynamic because. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, the chapter ends with Danny saying, and, and it was her 14th name day. So it's like, you know, it really just reminds you. Uh, and what Martin is trying to do is he's, he's depicting the fact that in classic society, basically, as soon as a woman hits puberty, she's eligible to be sold off into marriage, which in many cases is like slavery. Uh, and that's he's not running from that that fact here, I guess you could say.
1: I think it's an important point you brought up that she has no protectors, because it reminds me of Catelyn's little monologue to uh, Brienne about, you know, I'm supposed to be protected. They told me the rules of society were that I look after my children and that my father and brother and husband and sons look after me, but they're not here, so you'll have to do Brienne. And Danny comes to this similar realization over the course of these few chapters about Viserys, that Viserys never protected her that uh, Viserys is completely self-interested and she makes the connection to the larger political point of and that's why he wouldn't be a good king. Viserys' treatment of me is a microcosm for how he'd be as a ruler and this is yeah. why Viserys is never going to be able to take us home and never be an effective king. And like you say, Alamel, this is the moment when she starts really looking at herself as, as the possible replacement for him as she starts taking on responsibility for that task as she realizes he can't do it. And I think it's, although she goes through this brutal reawakening, rebirth process, the chapter itself kind of starts with that having already happened. Yeah. And she's just at, she's at the lip of the Dothraki Sea. And you know, Danny's story, as many people have pointed out, is all about, to a large degree, home and trying to find home and a place she belongs. This is her newest home, the Dothraki Sea, and it's this open-ended world of possibilities. There's the quote, Beneath them, the plain stretched out, immense and empty, a vast, vast flat expanse that reached the distant horizon and beyond. So you can do anything, the whole world's in front of you. And that's why she's so disturbed to imagine its fall. When she says to Jorah, "It's so beautiful here. I don't want to think about everything dying." When we first meet her in this chapter, she's gone. She's gone through this tempering process that LML describes. She, she's feeling better about herself and her place here, but she's also there's also that worry that it's all going to go away. You see, still kind of eating away at her newfound contentment underneath.
2: Yep, and uh, it's also the beginning of the dynamic of uh, Danny trying to grapple with what it takes to be a good ruler, which is one of the major themes of her entire plot arc. And it's one of the things that I feel like a lot of the quote-unquote Danny haters Mm -hmm. in the fandom fail to deal with adultly, you know, in a mature way. Like, there's definitely a lot of criticisms that you can make of Danny as a ruler because she's 15 and in a foreign land and doing her best, quote-unquote. And, you know, but the thing is, Martin is asking this question all through her arc of, what is it going to be like to be a ruler? With this question of, would Viserys be a good king? Jorah says, the common people really don't give a shit who the king is. They pray for rain, and they care about their immediate cares. And it says that it struck Danny odd at first, but the more she thought about it, she realized it was true. So this is Danny. Even as a 13-year-old in a foreign land, she's beginning to think about this dynamic. She's like, oh, yeah, the people just want to eat, don't they? And eventually we're going to see her feeding the masses... You know, this this wandering horde of freed slaves that she has that she considers basically her children. And she's trying her best to take care of them even to the point where she's compromising herself and doing risky things to protect them. And, you know, not going just back to Westeros but sticking around and trying to do her best yeah. to rule Marine because she feels like, you know, I broke it and I bought it and now I got to try to do what I can,
0: you know? So it's the beginning of that. It's, it's a terrific point. And it, it always takes me back to a contrast that Martin, I think is intentionally painting by the end of a dance with dragons between Aegon and Daenerys, because we see in this chapter where Dany is being tempered. She's learning how to rule. She's learning at some level, what, what bad rule looks like and how you can be a piece of shit asshole and to an individual person like her brother is to her. And how that can impact your outlook on world politics? Because Viserys is just, just not wise in this chapter, and that's something we can talk about at significant length throughout a Game of Thrones. Is that he's he's offered the ability to escape to Mance and wait for Khal Drogo to be ready, and that seems like a pretty wise thing for him to do. But he doesn't want to do that because he wants to make sure that that Khal Drogo pays the pays the price for uh, for Danny's hand in marriage, which is just. Dumb, if you think about it. If you, Viserys has no allies besides Jorah and Danny, like Khal Drogo doesn't really care about Viserys. I mean, as we're going to find out throughout, he despises Viserys. Jorah doesn't really like Viserys. Is all considers him the shadow of a snake. And then, kind of bring back to Aegon and to Danny. Danny is learning how to rule here. She's in the school of tough knocks. Whereas Aegon, you know, you have that whole monologue at the end of A Dance with Dragons in the epilogue, where Varys is telling Kevin Laster that. Aegon has been, you know, he's known what it's meant to be hungry. He's fished with the folk, he's gone hunting, he's been training with a septa, he's learned how to fight with a sword with a, with a knight. All of that stuff is almost an artificial training. It's 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 school learning, right? If if you want to put it in in kind of a dumb way, but like that kind of like school of hard knocks versus like the the people who actually go to school type of thing. Aegon has basically been in the context where he's not in any real danger, where he has not endured any actual hardships, all of that has been supervised. It's been artificially crafted to create a perfect prince in the in the parlance of, I think, what Stephen Atwell has talked about in terms of who Aegon is to Varus, whereas Dany has endured all of these things. She's in a ruling uh, arc, and she's in doing so, she's going through how to actually rule, and she's enduring actual elements. She's crossing the Dothraki Sea, thousands of miles of territory. She's enduring a whole new group of people, the Dothraki, their customs, their ways. She's learning about them. She even starts to learn their languages. We're going to find out out in future Danny chapters. And I think that's an important distinction that Martin is crafting in A Dance with Dragons for Aegon, where where his, how his education has worked out and how Martin is crafting Danny's very real experiential type of leadership that he's building here starting in this chapter.
1: Yeah, and she's, you know, she's learning... ...by going through something that Viserys has never gone through... ...and she's starting to try to put the pieces together between how you act and the consequences of leadership. There's the consistent theme in this chapter that what's beautiful is ahead of them... ...but that what's behind them, by the very nature of their presence, isn't so isn't so terrific. Uh, there's the line, "...she wrote at the head of the Kallassar with Drogo and his blood rider, so she came to each country fresh and unspoiled. Behind them the great horde might tear the earth and muddy the rivers and send up clouds of choking dust... But the fields ahead of them were always green and verdant. So there's this image of Danny kind of rushing towards the horizon and chasing something beautiful. But behind her, there are these consequences and costs and dead bodies. And you know what makes Danny, you know, a compelling character and what makes a lot of people love her is the stuff Elmo was talking about when she starts slowing down and paying attention to that stuff, as we'll get into mm-hmm. later in this book when she's noticing the cost of the of buying slaves to make their way to the Iron Throne or in Storm of Swords, sticking around at the end of her conquest in Slaver's Bay to try and plant trees. Yeah, obviously this is the beginning of her arc, so she's not her she's not as woke as she will be later on. We're more just being kind of shown <laughs> right. these images. But you can already right. see like that dynamic developing. Or there's the there were great elk in that wood, and spotted tigers and lemurs with silver fur and huge purple eyes, but all fled before the approach of the Kalasaur, and Danny got no glimpse of them. So, you know, this these animals running from their presence and, you know, Danny has to Danny wants the kind of campaign where, you know, it sounds silly, but all the animals would come to her. She wants to be that kind of fantastical character where she can have this communion with nature instead of having nature kind of run from her. So she's at the very beginning of that, and we see, we see the tempering of the, of the sword she is becoming, as Elamul as noted. We see the physical hardships of the ride. Her thighs were chafed raw, her hands were blistered. She could barely get on and off her horse. And that is, of course, linked to her abuse by Drogo, which you both talked about so well. Uh, even the knights brought no relief. Uh, Drogo would come to her tent and wake her in the dark to ride her as relentlessly as he rode his stallion. So with, with that uh, slightly uncouth imagery, we have this kind of connection of the hardship she's facing by day and the hardship she's facing by night. They're kind of united in this one gauntlet of, of torment she's going through. Um, and they're both compounded by her loneliness, as we said. She's got no real protectors. Viserys is supposed to keep her safe, but he's just focused on himself. And this, uh, you know, it brings her to the, the point of suicide. It's, it's really intense deprivation and pain she's facing, and she's considering ending it all. And what changes that is her, her dragon dream, and the, the, the sense that her pain isn't really being erased. Catching is still catching her on fire, the, the flame came roaring out in a hot jet, but it the pain is being transformed into energy and identity and something she can use. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her and temper and scour her clean. She felt strong and new and fierce. So it's the sense that she's got, uh, she's being pushed down so hard and this is a sense of her capturing something inside herself to push back with. She's being broken down and she finds this real core and that's sort of what's, what starts making her tough. And uh, the, the imagery is so vivid and you, you really feel it because of how low she's being brought to that point. And then you come back to the present day where she's riding the Dothraki scene, and you're like, okay, so that's how she got to the point of where she's so confident now where she can, can command them to wait, where she can ride so easily, where she can embrace the look. This is this is what it took to get there, which is, I think is a great way of structuring the chapter.
2: Cool, great points. Always enjoy listening to you make your points,
0: Emmett.
2: And you can tell uh, that happens to Jeff too. I mean, you know, you're talking on the podcast and he just sits there and listens and it's... It's uh, just fun to listen to you go, man. You 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 talk just long enough without sort of overdoing <laughs> it, uh, you know. But we're not, you know, people don't tune in for two hour podcasts to hear little concise sound bites. They want to hear people extemporize. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so yeah, that was great. Uh, but so check this uh, out. Commentary uh, noted, LML. Show me how it's done. Bring it on.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so uh, the one thing that's interesting to note here is this whole idea that we're starting to zero in on that. Danny's transformative moment here is her embracing the dragon fire in this dream. And it sears her and transforms her and she comes out strong and there's tempering uh, and her blood is burning and boiling away. Uh, and it's it's really interesting um, language because it compares very well to Melisandre's fire dream in A Dance with Dragons. And this is a clue that Danny is not just having a dream, but she's actually looking back on it. We can see that she's beginning to mess with fire magic in a real magical way. So, listen to this. A face took shape within the hearth. Stannis, she thought for a moment. (laughs) But no, these were not his features. Sorry, guys. A wooden face, corpse white. (laughs) Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head and howled. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, blackened, smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. And that goes on. And it says she was weeping and her tears were flame, and still she drank it in. So you can see a lot of the same language. Uh, there's a call out to Nissa Nissa's agony and ecstasy here. As well. And of course, Nissanissa Nissa can be seen as being transformed by fire since she was stabbed by a magical flaming sword that burns people. <laughs> uh, and here we have Melisandre embracing the fire like a lover and it's burning her blood, just like Danny's blood was burning. And uh, we're going to talk about Danny's dragon hatching scene, but in that scene, there's a lot of the same language, including the agony and ecstasy, the, the smoking, oh, the fire was inside her. That's the one. That's like one of the most key lines that Martin uses is the fire was inside her. And Danny feels that when she walks into the pyre. And here we have it uh, with Melisandre. So I just wanted to begin to point that out that this is the beginning of Danny actually embracing magic. And that's why she wakes up from this dream and she's physically stronger. It's not just a turning point emotionally, although it definitely is that. She's beginning to connect with the dragon's egg. And she is beginning to draw strength from that. It's a magical bond, and it depends on her dragon blood that's basically beginning to be active. She says the fire sings to her in the dream. You can just hear it, Martin telling you, like, it's singing. Her blood is singing out, too, in response. And she feels this connection to this dragon. (laughs) And it ends with her hatching the dragons, which is obviously a magical act. So,
0: Yeah one of the things that you had brought up in in the uh, brand three chapter we did is that martin does well in writing because he weaves in the emotion with the imagery here so I think it's awesome that we have this dream where Danny has the dragon fire cleansing her scouring her clean but that feeds right into her feeling stronger and newer and fiercer after all of that so it's not just simple imagery that's foreshadowing Danny's coming embrace of the dragons and the birth of the dragons. It's also something personal for Danny too. It's, it's something emotional for Danny and that really works well. And that's something that Martin does well in writing these, the, this imagery. Cause if it was just simple imagery, at least for me, my eyes would gloss over and I would move on to the next thing, but because it's grounded in the emotion and in what it does for Danny personally and makes it much better in terms of, in terms of its writing.
2: My head, the people at home can't see, but my head is nodding like a bobblehead over here. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. That's exactly right. And this is why George Martin says over and over again, knowing full well that half of his fans are aspiring writers, he says, hard in conflict, hard in conflict, also, by the way, hard in conflict. It's the whole thing, the characters and their conflicts. And he's not telling you don't do awesome world building because he fucking does awesome world building. He's just telling you, Always center it on the characters Mm -hmm. and their conflicts. And if you do that, you can get away with doing all the fun, nerdy world building and not write a book that only, you know, basement trolls living in their parents' basement will read and enjoy or whatever. And shout out to the basement trolls. (laughs) But you get the idea. It's like Martin's books have a wide appeal is what I'm trying to say. And that is because he always keeps it centered on the characters, and that way he can get away with doing fantasy, uh, and then get people who don't really like fantasy or aren't like super turned on by the fantasy. Like me and Emmett, we key in, right? So you, Jeff, aren't turned on. You're raising your hand here. Yep. You're not as much turned on by the by the. Uh, but for me and Emmett, this is kind of an erotic thing. <laughs> uh, you know these these psychedelic dreams, and we get excited about this stuff. So. But anyways, yeah, the, that's the point. Martin is always rooting it with the characters and their hearts in conflict, and that's how it all works, and that's why he beats it into our brains, yeah. and he
0: preaches it all the time. He does that, and then he uses that conflict, too, then, and expands out that conflict to make it a familiar one when Viserys shows up in Danny's chapter.
1: Exactly right. I think, uh, yeah, I come at the series loving psychedelic fiction, loving horror especially, more even than fantasy, and I think Martin really draws from a lot of, like, 60s, 70s psychedelic writing and from horror, obviously a genre he's worked in, to really ramp up his imagery, and that's something that drew me heavily into the series. But as you say, it's really tied to character. You, the The dream scene is so effective in part because of the effective contrast it draws with Viserys, who immediately shows up shattering the dream, coming on sudden as a, as a storm. And it makes this perfect juxtaposition in her head, like, that's what the dragon really looks like, is this kind of image building in her mind, this apotheosis in her veins. And Viserys, who thinks of himself as the dragon, who calls himself the dragon, just looks so pathetic in comparison to that, with his mm-hmm. his stained silks and his pretense and how he can't take the slightest of insults and he has no composure. Uh, Dany first kind of sees through that image and sees how pathetic he is, and that's in part because she's adapted to the Dothraki Sea much better than he has. He says, you know, there's that line you pointed out in your synopsis, Jeff, where he's just like, look at you. And she she, knew, she realized what she, she looks like, that she looks more at home here. But it's also because she's found this dragon identity within her that's separate from him that's required a lot of work and struggle and sacrifice on her part. And so he starts to look less and less impressive. It's She's escaped his bubble, the stories he told her, the identity he imposed upon her. She's finding something else and that allows her to see him more clearly.
0: Yeah, it's like um, it's it's definitely a permutation that we saw in Danny's first chapter where she is aware of the names that they've given to Viserys, the Beggar King. And we see here the Beggar King in action where he's in borrowed clothing with a borrowed sword on the Dothraki Sea begging Khal Drogo essentially to win the Iron Throne for him. And I think that's it's, it's great that Martin continues to build that imagery around Viserys, and he continues to do that in all of the Danny chapters that he's alive in, I guess, for, for lack of a better term.
2: Yeah, this really highlights um, how, how little Viserys understands about projecting power. Like, Melisandre gives this dissertation in A Dance with Dragons about projecting power, bringing the escorts around you, the trappings of power, and how important they are. She's trying to teach this to John And Viserys totally doesn't get it. Like, he should have realized right away... That going into the Dothraki Sea was a losing situation for him. It would—it was a situation where he wasn't gonna win people's respects. He didn't have the skills needed to win people's respect in that society. It was inevitable that he ended up as the cart king. <laughs> you know, like that was gonna happen one way or the other. And he should have realized his only way to project power was to stay at Illyrio's manse, which was basically the only current source of his power. He—he he didn't get that at all, and he continued to rage like it, he drove Mormont away from him by giving him a command he couldn't carry through. He's like, Mormont, slay these Dothraki, beat my sister. And it's like, <laughs> okay, well, that made that choice easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? He's basically like saying, like, Mormont, kill yourself, essentially. I mean, like, he's, he's asking Mormont to, co- to essentially commit suicide by, the go suicide by, by Dothraki. Um, the question I always have, though, and I, I've had this for several years and, and this is a little bit off topic, but what the fuck was Illyrio doing? What was what was Illyrio's plan here with keeping Viserys back at Pentos while the Dothraki were out on the Dothraki Sea with Daenerys? Like, obviously the plan was Viserys-oriented at this point in time, because we, we find out later in Dance that Illyrio thought that Daenerys would die on the Dothraki Sea. But he invites... Viserys to stay, and his Manson Pento. So, what is what is the deal with that? What is he trying to do here?
2: Well, the only thing he's really trying to do is provoke an invasion of Westeros by the Dothraki, right? Yeah, he doesn't care about the welfare of Danny. Or that's all. That's as much as I can say. I'm not that clever with this sort of stuff. <laughs>
1: it's all good. <laughs> the very fact, the very fact that he doesn't care when Viserys goes on the Dothraki sea instead, Alera doesn't even seem to put up a fight, suggests that Viserys is kind of disposable. And yeah, I agree with David at this point, it seems like Danny and Viserys, Danny and Viserys are both expendable as far as Varus and Illyrio are concerned, that they they're not thinking about the Dothraki's anything more to either than something they're gonna either have join up with Egan and the Golden Company, or maybe have the Dothraki inf- invade first and then have Egan and the Golden Company save the day from the Dothraki. I've seen that tossed around as a theory mm-hmm. of what the plan might have been at some point. It seems like the plan has continually evolved, but yeah, Viserys uh, doesn't seem to realize that he's playing a smaller and smaller part in it, and he's being kind of swallowed up by the sea, and yeah, uh, you made a great point, David, that, you know, he gives Jorah an order that is never gonna follow, and he acts like Jorah can just, like, he acts like Jorah's not outnumbered by the Dothraki, like <laughs> thousands to one, or even in the situation they're in, four to one by, Doth- by Dany's Blood Riders. And he's got that assumption that Jorah can just kill them all because he has this intense racial superiority, supremacy thing baked into his brain. Mm -hmm. Something that Jorah himself says he's moved past. He said, Was it when I first came to Essos, I assumed a thousand knights could easily destroy every Dothraki, but now I've seen them fight and I think differently. And that holds weight because Jorah is the resident Westerosi. He's the one there who spent most of his adult life on the continent. He can speak with some authority. So it means something that he chooses Danny over Viserys, that he says Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake, that and that he like LML said that he speaks about what the small folk want politically. That carries weight for Danny because he's he knows Westeros more than she does and more than Viserys does. So that's what enables him her to start rethinking her role and Viserys' role in the whole Targaryen restoration project. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Always the place filler.
2: <laughs> and we can we can uh also it's good to put together Illyrio's conversation with uh Tyrion in a dance with dragons yeah. regarding his lust for Daenerys and just remark that Illyrio's a fucking disgusting motherfucker. Yep.
1: Oh he really just is. Got, needs to be said, but moving on. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean that moment where she defies Viserys and Jorah tells her it was the right thing to do, that's what kind of opens her up to the conversation she has about sex with her handmaid and opens her up to thinking about moons and eggs and dragons as she does. And it kind of connects to her metaphysical role. She's (laughs) thinking about herself, oh, maybe I'm the Targaryen heir. In the same way she starts thinking, oh, maybe I have a metaphysical role to play. Maybe Khaleesi is a more active role than the pure brood mare that I thought it was at first. Maybe I can make something more of this. It's all all those strains of her growth come together, cultural, familial, political, metaphysical. Uh, you can see them all really working in tandem, which, like you said, Jeff, if they were kind of disjointed and you were just like, here's a dollop of world building here, here's some character work here, it would feel less coherent. This chapter yeah. feels really cohesive in the way all these strands come together. That's really the appeal of it, I think.
0: Yeah, it really is. It really, really is. But it's all happening in when she's only freaking 13 years old. I mean, the end of the chapter is her 14th name day, but this is all happening when she's 13 years old. I mean, as a 13-year-old kid, I, I could not have endured all
1: this shit. Oh, yeah. I think LML was right that that last line is a gut punch. It's supposed to be that you're like, you've gone through all this, like, growth and intensity and images, but then it's like, hey, and at the very last sentence, let's just remind you, she just turned 14. So I think that, yeah, that's definitely supposed to cast a certain pall on everything that's happened previously, especially the, uh, the abuse, the sexual abuse that she undergoes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's it's worth noting uh, the reason why Martin decided to make her a slave to begin with. It's because a major part of her identity is breaker of chains. She is a slave. She was sold into slavery. She understands. And you can really see that in the, I'm sure you're going to talk about it with, uh, is it Aroa? The the woman Mm -hmm. that she tries to save, you know? Um, So this is a running I mean, it's an important part of her identity. People sometimes express her dichotomy as, uh, you know, the, the dragons don't plant trees, fire and blood side of her, and then also her desire to plant trees, mm-hmm. as she actually does plant trees in Marine, yeah. Um, which which is always fun to note. Mm. So she's got these two sides of her, where she's, she's a scouring fire, but she's also a seed planter. But it's also important to see that the breaker of chains is is an identity to her that serves both sides of that, uh, because the breaking of the chains comes with the dragon fire and the violence, uh, but freeing the slaves is part of planting the seeds for a new world. You're giving people their freedom back so that they can take control of their lives and hopefully create a better society. Uh, if all every, you know everything goes right, cross your fingers, wink, wink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know,
1: let let them eat cake. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's... Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think Martin, generally speaking, doesn't believe in rigid oppositional dichotomies so much as uh, synthesis. This is something you've talked about in a variety of ways in in your essays and videos, sir. You know, just the imagery of frozen fire and dragons trapped in ice and all these things that would seem like opposites, but they actually are are combined and contacted and, and have intertwined over the years and intertwined in the form of people. Jon Snow being only the most obvious example. And I think you see that with Danny too, that it's not just that she's has these two sides to her and it's ambiguous and about their conflict. It's about the complexity of realizing how these sides that seem so oppositional can in fact feed into one another and be part of the same thing. I mean that's yeah. something we were touching on a little bit with Stannis earlier on the episode, that it's not just that Stannis has good parts and bad parts, it's that sometimes it can be difficult to tell one from the other because Damn. he's doing bad things in the name of the values that lead him to the good parts or he's taking advantage of his good parts but he's still doing it in a way that leaves you kind of feeling uh, sour about the whole thing. So these these Which is are how are, some people are. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. which is how, you know, it's it's these are the questions you have to confront if you're going to try to be the hero or the king or any kind of or just a person. So <laughs> it, it, like we said it ties back to the conflict within itself and I think Danny is obviously so crucial for that question. Yeah. And I think you can see that beginning here. There's a, uh, if you take out the
0: metaphor of the, the seed planter, it, it Danny becomes the Misa or the mother in the Storm of Swords to the, to the slaves, but she's also the dragon too. And you're talking about the synthesis of those two sides of her that really comes into play in two major ways in Storm and then in Dance, where she crucifies the masters after she witnesses the murder of all the slave children on the, on the road from Yunkai to Marine. And so those things synthesized there, where that mother's side then feeds into her dragon side, because she says that she feels like an avenging dragon as she as she's watching them being nailed to the crosses, and then in dance where. Um, in her second chapter from A Dance with Dragons, where she's heard about the murder of Missandei's brother and that mother's side then appeals to her and then it feeds into her then ordering the torture of the wine cellar's daughter and that same side of the dragon, she's feeling the dragon there. So those two sides are synthesizing there. And I, this is probably a personal criticism of, of my some of my earlier work and from some meta stuff I was writing a few years ago, but I, used to, I had a very strong feeling that there was a much stronger divergence between the dragon and the mother's side. But I think as I've Matured and grown a little bit in reading this series. I think they do synthesize. And I think in The Winds of Winter, I have to imagine that that synthesis is something that'll be continuing as you add in the Messiah side of her, too, which starts in a storm of swords, grows in a dance with dragons, and now is embedded with a bit of prophecy as well. So you're going to have mother, dragon, Messiah, prophetic hero of the story, then all synthesizing into one. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see where Martin takes. Danny's story going forward, and it all starts here in this chapter. Here,
1: yeah, I think you can see with both Catelyn and Cersei, the idea they bring both bring up the idea that mothers can be as, as the mother can be as fierce as the warrior. To put it in terms of the Seven, so I think, yeah, I think those sides those sides combine quite frequently. What were you going to say, Sir LML? Oh,
2: I was uh, just going to agree and say that I've really zeroed in on the idea of Danny as a cleansing fire that's going to sort of burn away a lot of the rot hmm. that needs to be burned away. When she comes to Westeros, before even she deals with the others, yeah. uh, I could see her playing that sort of role. And, and again, it's very much just like scouring away the old so that new seeds can be planted. And she might not be around to garden and grow the tree, but she will at least clear the way for it and maybe plant a seed or two. That's, that's how I see
0: her. You always need a fire in the forest
1: sometimes, yeah. Beautifully said, sir. I completely agree. Moving on to our uh, likes and dislikes of this chapter, Uh, something I really liked about it that I've kind of touched on so far, but I wanted to call it out specifically, is that this is arguably the first chapter in the series where Martin starts doing really interesting things with time. Generally speaking, in the book so far, he's focused on its chapters are largely equivalent to one or two scenes that happen over, you know, what feels like an hour over the course of a day. This is one uh, where Martin starts playing with the structure of it. Uh, uh, Danny's flashback as she rides down to the Dothraki Sea both zooms in on individual moments, and then starts leaping forward over weeks and months to explain where Danny's hat is at in the present day. It's it's the first stab at the kind of virtuosity Martin does with time that you'll see in like, uh, Jeff's favorite chapter in the series, Sansa 2, A Storm of Swords. Uh, (laughs) The one where Martin tells the story of Sansa acquiring her dress almost in reverse, like he starts with the dress, and again he starts building his way back through all the decisions and moments that led to the existence of the dress, so that by the end of the chapter you realize the dress's significance. Uh, Jeff is just, just shaking his head and gritting his teeth, so I'm already looking forward to getting to that chapter. Or like, or even stuff like Telling Time by the Moon when Bran gets to the cave mm-hmm. and Dance with Dragons, where it's like, the crescent moon was as sharp as a knife, or the crescent moon was as full, you know. He, that's how he, he marks time in that chapter and kind of gets you into Bran's headspace, how was connecting to nature and how that's determining his biological rhythms. So this is, we're talking about this chapter as a, a lot of being a lot of firsts for Martin in terms of how he writes, and how he writes Danny's character. But this is another one of those first This is where Martin starts playing around with the chronology in interesting ways. And that's something I appreciate.
2: So this is a huge what-makes-George-Martin-great point of mine, which is sure. called In Late, Out Early. And they teach this in writing class as kind of a basic principle. Uh, but it's super important to highlight. In late out early means you don't you don't tell the whole story, the chapter in a linear order. You start with Danny already writing, having her remembering stuff as something important's about to happen, or she's even remembering stuff as things are happening, <laughs> and it allows Martin to juxtapose something from three weeks ago or five years ago over the current events. And Martin uses that just, I mean, that's one of his basic techniques in order to make this stuff grab you and make it move fast even though it's a huge book and it's really dense, they always move fast because of in late, out early you skip all the boring stuff you drop them right in there and you have the their recollections and flashback thoughts coming in in a limited fashion. When it's in flashback you're freed from all the constraints of a narrative. You don't have to say, and then, and then, and mm-hmm. then, and then. You can just sort of, little snippets, they can, the recall can come. You can present the memory as a flawed recollection from the unreliable narrator instead of the thing that's actually happening that you're witnessing. So there's just so many good things that happen when you when you start messing with the narrative time-wise. And if you don't, it kind of sounds, it starts to read like an amateurish writing where everything is linear. It's and then and this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then the chapter was over and it's mm. like, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Love that one. Yeah. Great point, Emmett.
0: Yeah, I think like... I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, like I, like like Emmett said, the time skips make it interesting because it, it, you're really delving into the different emotional states of Daenerys Targaryen as she's progressing through the Dothraki Sea and I think it's a great way that Martin writes, like Elmo says. And I think the dreams and prophecies and visions, they all work to set a really great eerie mood but um, I'm going to say something for my like that I kind of glossed over in the summary, and that's the description of Essos after Danny's dragon dreams, high blue waterfalls, black and marble columns of dead, in dead cities, Valyrian roads stray as a Dothraki arrow, the golden canopy of the forest of Cahor. The colors just burst into the page here, and this is something where Martin's skill as a writer comes into focus The descriptions of the journey, the colors, the beauty, the majesty. And it's something that that George R. Martin has written about where he said, quote, fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli. How do you say that? Lapis lazuli? Lapis lazuli. Yeah, that's it. He does a great job, and he, what Martin does is he does a great job of putting the, his words about how, he should, how, fantasy be, how fantasy should be written into action in this chapter. And I just love all of the, um, the different imagery that he uses here, and the colors especially.
2: Uh, if I could just jump on that real quick, I'd like to again point out uh, how s- limited the prose is, and how he's not going into, again, long descriptions of crystal castles in the sky. By doing this all in flashback, it's just the golden canopy of the forest of Kohor. If Danny was there in that moment, you'd have to stop and describe how tall the tree is <laughs> and describe the way the branches filter out the light, and you end up with this long, boring description. Instead, it's just, you know, the golden canopy of the forest of Kohor, and they, they throw out some strange animals that were in the forest, again, with one-line descriptions. that Basically, he's giving you these powerful little words that make your imagination run away. And fill it out in your mind, and he's moving on with the narrative, and this is how it doesn't get bogged down, but he can still do this colorful world building. This is one paragraph, yeah, and it's talking about all this stuff. So again, lecture, you know, lesson to young writers. I mean, this is this is how you do it efficiently,
0: yeah. And you know, it's it's funny, it's funny too. The, you you talk about it in flashback, but in the Winds of Winter, we talked about this in an earlier episode in Arianne's second chapter where she is moving through. The Rainwood. She goes really in-depth on all of the different plants and the trees and the things that she's seeing. But he also makes that work, too. He he's allows the present point of view of Arianne Martel to give us a really great perspective on all the different woods and the trees and the flowers and the leaves. And so he, he can do both, essentially. He's a magician. He can do both.
1: Well said on both your parts, gentlemen. Again, I completely agree with all of that. And I also love the image of a Valyrian road straight as a Dothraki arrow. That just lets you know like the roads are of course a source of commerce and easy transportation, but also a tool of kind of conquest and imperialism. That mm-hmm. You know, you, you you send your armies along those roads to more easy conquer parts of, of Europe. So, Europe. <laughs> um, slip of the tongue there with Valyria as the Roman Empire. So, uh, I like that, that little imagery comparison. It's a nice, nice touch on Martin's part, and I completely agree with what you guys are saying about uh, connecting the imagery to the narrative and how Martin deployed that beautifully with the flashback. Uh, we've had so much praise for this chapter so far, so to mention something I uh, kind of scratch my head about, uh, as someone who really hates Dora Mormont, it's no <laughs> surprise that my yes. problem with this chapter is, uh, surrounds him. Uh, and don't get me wrong, his, line, his signature line from this chapter is, is, is great. The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends. It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their game of thrones, so long as they are left in peace, they never are. That's a beautifully written line, it's really important for the themes of the series. Uh, as you said in your synopsis though, Jeff, it is weird that it comes from the guy who not only sold his people into slavery to pay the bills, but doesn't regret it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like that whole process opened his mind and opened his eyes to the true uh, horror of the way Westeros is structured as a society and this is his conclusion. Like, he doesn't, he he still doesn't think he was wrong and he still goes on to enslave Tyrion in a dance with dragons. Uh, And then later he's himself enslaved, but again, there's no like, there's no dramatic catharsis to this is what I'm saying. Like, the irony is there in the text, but it never seems to come to the fore and Martin Mm -hmm. doesn't really communicate it dramatically to the audience. Part of me wonders whether Jorah should have been a POV. Part of me thinks it might have worked better if we'd learned his backstory a little later. Like, if he said this and then later we learned that he enslaved his own people, that might work as being, ah, he said that important line, but, you know, in truth, he's a hypocrite and he behaves like everybody else. As it stands, it feels like Martin just wanted that line out there, and it doesn't. It feels like a missed opportunity, is what I'm saying. I feel like that could have been used in a great way to create irony surrounding Jorah's character, but as it is, I don't really feel it.
2: I think Jorah's is deeply cynical. Like he understands what how the small folk feel. He understand he just feels like, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose and it's a dog eat dog world. I could I could hear him espousing a lot of Sandor's philosophy in a slightly more polite way if he was to be totally honest.
0: Yeah. I think it's a good point. I mean he is a hypocrite. I mean that's that's obvious as we delve more into his story. I mean we already have part of the story from Eddard's previous chat from Eddard Two from A Game of Thrones in which Ned talks about having to go to Bear Island to try and bring Mormont to justice, but him fleeing before the the strong hand of northern justice can come for him. Um, yeah, he's, he's a total hypocrite here. And it the line is great. I mean, I, I agree. The line is terrific. And I think it's something in my Kindle, it's been highlighted by like 800 people or something like that. There's parts of it that will show like that people have really gravitated to this line. But I do wonder... If people can connect that line to Jorah's actual, actual behavior. And I do think that perhaps in the TV show, Mormont is more sympathetic and maybe they're connecting that line, which is also in the TV show as well, to the character played by Ian Glenn. I, I'm not sure if that's that plays a part in people disassociating Mormont's words with his actions, but... Yeah, Mormont himself seems to be disassociating his words with his actions.
1: I agree that he's supposed to be a cynical character. I just think, like, Sandor works dramatically for me where I can see the scared little boy he was hiding inside even his worst actions and words. For me, Jorah is just, like, a lot of raw material for an interesting character that never gets assembled into one. Like, again, there's there's a real juicy irony to the slaver getting enslaved in Dance with Dragons, but it, it, like, it almost never comes up. Like, he's still just the same guy with the same goal at the end of Dance. He's still pursuing Danny single-mindedly and doing what he has to get there. So I feel like there, there could be more done to to bring Jorah's contradictions to the surface and actually make a compelling story out of them. For me, he just feels like an outline that didn't go anywhere. But I know he works well for a lot of people, and there's certainly grounds to compare him to Sandor. Uh, and for me, Sandor's one of the most effective characters in the entire yes. story. So this might, this might just be a your mileage may vary taste kind of thing. Jorah's never worked especially well for me. So I might just be biased coming back to this in my reread. I, I, I agree that Jorah doesn't work as well for me either.
0: But yeah, my dislike for this chapter is going to be a more difficult one. And just to let you know, we'll be talking a little bit Frank, more frankly about rape and sexual assault in this this portion. So just be aware of that if you're listening along with us. So when we talked about Danny's second chapter a few months ago with uh, Eliana, a.k.a. Class Table Girl, we mentioned that there's a disturbing aspect aspect between that Danny chapter and this one. So at the end of a Game of Thrones, Danny Two, as actually problematic as this, rela- as the relationship between Drogo and Danny is, there's a tenderness at the start of their sexual relationship, but that changes. In Danny Three, George is very clearly indicating that what Drogo is doing is rape, full stop. So what changed between the no yes dynamic in Danny Two and Drogo riding Daenerys as relentless as relentlessly as his horse in Danny Three, and why? And then meanwhile, at the end of the chapter, Daenerys takes agency in the sexual relationship, but there's something that's missing here as well, in my opinion, and that is what exactly is it that causes Dany to want to be in a consensual sexual relationship with Drogo, and why. Subtextually, and Emma, both Emma and LML talked about this, it reads that Dany's dragon dream works to shape her identity and transform that pain into energy, and thereafter she takes some sexual some pleasure in the sex, but that doesn't show why Dany wants Drogo. There's no, like... I don't know, rationalizing it as the price of the Iron Throne, which is what she does with the Lazarine later on in, in A Game of Thrones, or something that clearly ties the symbolism, the dragon symbolism, and the dragon egg symbolism to her sexuality and the potential for becoming pregnant by Khal Drogo. It's, it's not made explicit, and maybe we're supposed to draw the implicit connection here, but it doesn't necessarily work for me.
2: Yeah, I, I probably have to agree with that. There is actually some amount of sexual symbolism with the whole dragon egg The moon and sun as a man and wife, but it doesn't perform the function that you're talking about, which is giving Danny some sort of cause to see a redeeming value in Drogo. Like, you know, that's kind of what was missing—some sort of moment where she saw a bit of kindness or something to work with. Yeah, in him, and it doesn't really, like you said, it actually got worse from the last chapter to this chapter. Uh, So that's probably something that. Well, definitely something that could have been done better. I would have to agree with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were saying earlier how Martin tends to work really well on multiple layers at once, doing character stuff and symbolic stuff and narrative stuff and, like, you know, thematic political hit you on the head stuff. All really well, all at the same time. But this is an area where I agree he was dead on in terms of the symbolism, as we'll get into a little more later in the episode dead on in terms of Danny's character arc of taking on the reins of her own life and responsibility and assimilating into the Oath rocky It all makes sense in that regard. It doesn't make sense in terms of Danny's relationship with Drogo and him being the kind of the vessel for this awakening on her part. That's something where I agree. Martin could have, he could have used something like a call back to the yes-no interplay they had right before they had sex for the first time. They could have used... Drogo being kind in some way that leads her to initiate this conversation about about sex and taking it outside and everything she she does. It, it fits on a emotional, instinctive level in terms of building on her self-actualization within the chapter. But yeah, I agree with you, Jeff. I don't think it really works. It's not romantic, where it kind of feels like Martin intended it to be in some way. Yeah. And I, I think he came up short in that regard. And maybe he came up short... Because he's dealing with touchy issues of consent and racial representation, which you know a lot of writers, even with the best intentions, fall flat in their face when they start digging heavily into the stuff, especially white writers. So yeah. I think that might have happened here. Not that I'm condemning George R. R. Martin and calling him a racist, but <laughs> I think he's dealing. I think he's dealing with heavy stuff here and juggling a lot of things at once, and sometimes all of this stuff just falls completely flat.
0: Do you guys feel like maybe this should have been two chapters, almost like a symbolism chapter and then like a more symbolism heavy chapter, and then a more. I mean, not not to like totally discard everything we've been saying in this so no, far. No, I
2: think it just needed that moment that you said it needed. Really, it all needs to belong here. There's a reason why it all belongs together. Uh, yeah. But but it needed it needed a couple of beats there that you you absolutely p- put your finger on correctly. I think it's easy. You can see why Drogo begins to respect Danny is because the Dothraki respects strength, and yes. th- that's why Viserys does not get respect. And it's contrasted with Danny who's beginning to gain respect from her. Uh, First her handmaidens, and then the other riders who respond to her and take her command. And that moment is is encapsulated when she says, you know, no, we're not going to do it, you know, Dothraki style. I'm going to be on top, and we're going to go outside. So she picks the spot, and she takes control of the experience. You can see Drogo basically acquiescing because he respects the strength that she's showing And so that, that part is done well. Uh, but like you said, the missing piece is why is Drogo, why is Danny not seeing Drogo as basically a hostile rapist, you know, someone who's basically enslaving her and just using her? Like, there's no, where's that endearing moment? Yeah. You know, it didn't really, wasn't there. So, yeah, we don't
1: need to belabor the point, but it's, it's well said. Yes, indeed, sirs. Moving on to kind of the foreshadowing and groundwork laid down in this chapter, as you can kind of get a sense from what we've said so far, there is a lot of it. This is where a lot of the images and ideas that circle around not just Daenerys, but Martin's overall relationship to myth and character development really come into play. Something we have discussed a couple times is the amount of groundwork this chapter does for the rebirth of the dragons that occurs at the end of Daenerys' arc in a game of thrones at the end of a game of thrones overall as a book and the final chapter who said there's the dragon dream and right afterwards there's her new relationship to her eggs she touched one the largest of the three running her hand lightly over the shelf black and scarlet she thought like the dragon in my dream the stone felt strangely warm beneath her fingers or was she still dreaming and then later stone she told herself they're only stone even illyrio said so the dragons are all dead she put her palm against the black egg, fingers spread gently across the curve of the shell. The stone was warm, almost hot. The sun, Danny whispered. The sun warmed them as they rode. So obviously the foreshadowing is quite clear. My question to you guys here is, uh, is this too obvious? Like, is, is it giving away too much that these eggs are going to hatch? I don't necessarily remember predicting it my first time through. Coming back to it, it seems really obvious. Should, should it be less so, or is it effective as it is? What do you guys think?
2: So I think Martin frequently does very obvious foreshadowing, but he distracts you while he's doing it so that you don't yes, notice it agreed. on the first go around. There's so much going on uh, that it's easy to miss it. The little, the little story about the dragon eggs is quick, and this moment with the dragons is quick. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really the answer, is he's distracting you at the same time. And, and also, by the time you get to the end of the story, the death of Drogo and the breakup of the Kalisar is such a tragic event That it sort of erases whatever little, like... If you ever thought the thing was predictable, all of a sudden it just went up in flames. Yeah, And then here's Danny, half mad, piling the eggs on the pyre, and you're like, oh, wow, this is kind of crazy. And there's Miriam (laughs) door. you're wrestling... Again, it's Miriam door getting burned alive to distract you as well, so there's, there's always a lot of things going on to hide the foreshadowing. But in retrospect, yes. I mean, in retrospect, Danny's seeing the Red Wedding is is almost heavy handed. It's like, oh look, a guy with the wolf's head and all his people are dead and they're at a wedding. It's like that should have set off major <laughs> alarm bells the moment they started talking about going to a wedding at the phrase, but I don't think it really did for most people. Yeah. That
0: first time. I agree with that. And and you know, George throws a lot of story between this chapter and the birth of the dragons. This is Danny's third chapter and the birth of the dragons occurs seven chapters later in her final chapter, her tenth chapter. So I think the first time reader would be forgiven if they forgot all of this imagery and forgot all of the the dragon eggs and how they're warm to the touch and how there's light that's running out to it and bursting into a thousand droplets of uh, of red light or red color, rather. And that's, I think LML's spot on too in that he obscures a lot of his foreshadowing by throwing all this other stuff at you in the same chapter as well. And that as soon as these... Images are are there in your head. Then you have Viserys coming out uh, out of uh, coming onto her in the Dothraki Sea. After the story of the um, the Carthine, the Carthine myth about the the moon and the moon meteor, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, you have the Danny Drogo scene right after that. And you know it's it's funny too. There's a little bit of misdirection, I would say, in the end of the chapter where Danny asks Doria to stay behind and accompany her to dinner. Because you assume they're probably going to talk about what she was talking about earlier, right? About the the moons and everything like that, because that's still in your mind. But right after that, Martin immediately has Danny having sex with Drogo and having sex in the ways that Dory had told her. So they were talking about the ways that that Daenerys could seduce and, and bring a bit of autonomy to the sexual relationship with Drogo. So he's misdirecting in the same chapter as well as throwing a lot of story between this chapter and the and the birth of the dragons at the end of A Game of Thrones.
1: Once more, I think you both nailed it, sirs. I completely agree that Martin does a wonderful job of distracting you. An example that came to mind while you were talking, LML, about later in this book is when the Whites show up at Castle Black. And you could say Martin makes it very obvious about what these dead bodies are, and that they're going to come back and bother people. When Sam is describing how weird the corpses are, when none of the animals get near them, when someone points out they have blue eyes now—you've already seen the others with their eyes. You know this is a giveaway. But then immediately, 04, John had no blue eyes. Before <laughs> <or> fire, exactly. <laughs> neither did Jay for flowers, and yeah, there's, it's really creepy. But then immediately, yeah, John gets neither did neither did Jay for flowers. That's that's right. <laughs> Immediately John gets word of Ned's downfall, and then immediately Sir Aliser says a snarky thing about it, and then immediately John goes after Sir Aliser. So you're distracted. There's a tons of plot happening, you you think this is this is where the story's going. So by the time John wakes up to feel the cold and looks outside to see his guards neck snapped, you've already forgotten about the whites or the potential whites, so he's moved on. And I also agree that Martin is good at misdirection and offering you alternate explanations, like Another example, like the Red Wedding, as, as you said, LML, it's very obvious in Danny's image of the House of the Undying. There's a bunch of other clear foreshadowing about it, like Theon's dream with Rob coming out of the night, having been stabbed with a half hundred wounds. But when Catelyn and Rob arrive at the Twins in a Storm of Swords, it seems like Walder Frey's just being a petty asshole. Yeah. Like when he's making them wait or giving them bad food or snarking about Jane Westerling... He's being an asshole, but Walder Frey's always this way. So you can easily excuse it to yourself as, oh, he's just being petty, he's just being mean, that's just the way he is. Rob is making these plans for this attack on Moat Cailin. Clearly that's what the plot is. Clearly that's what's going to happen next. So he, he he tips his hand, he gives you enough stuff to notice on reread, like when Lord Walder says, the red will run. Hey, 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 But the first time through, you're, just, you're not thinking of Walder Frey on that level. You're thinking of him as just like the petty... Guy in the room Who makes everyone uncomfortable You're not thinking of him As a supervillain At that point So that's It's that plausible deniability
2: Yeah the over the top insults Are almost distracting you From the actual
1: Yeah it's almost too obvious And that's how he gets you Or like And Martin as, with the, as... Yeah Sorry, I, just so many okay. ideas popping out No, as as the Girls
2: Gone Canon pointed out, Littlefinger uses this strategy intentionally in the books He distracts Ned with all these insults and barbs so that Ned kind of thinks, well, this is who Littlefinger is He's this little dick who likes to <laughs> fucking pull my chain every once in a while uh, But at the same time he ends up basically trusting Littlefinger and falling for his, his fake persona that he gives him uh, which is ironically just what Littlefinger wants to do anyway, so it's Anyways, it's all happening there.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I think you can see Martin doing that with the dragon dream in this chapter where maybe one of the reasons it's not so obvious is because it comes off as just symbolic of Dany's internal struggle. Like your first time through, you could think, oh, that's just Martin's way of expressing Dany coming into her own and moving away from Viserys. But then, no, it's, well, it is that, but it's also very literal, and you might not know that your first time through that uh, Martin's expression of the dragon coming to life and uh, Danny passing through its fire is very literally going to happen at the end of the book. You might think it's just a symbol, so Martin definitely plays with you there. Uh, Speaking of images that seem purely symbolic but then kind of cross into reality, we have the image that kicks off the chapter when Danny and Jorah are looking down the Dothraki Sea. And George says, Down in the shadowlands beyond the shy, they say there are oceans of ghost grass, taller than a man on horseback, with stalks as pale as milk glass. And something that only came to mind on this reread, because I'd been recently rereading LML stuff, is that a uh, milk glass is also how uh, Sam describes the bones of the others. Hmm. When, he, when he kills one in A Storm of Swords, he also describes like, the remains that it leaves behind as it melts as, as being like milk glass. So there's that connection, and then Jorah goes on to say that, you know, the legend of the ghost grass is that it will cover the entire world and then all life will end. So you see this, this connection to the other's apocalypse going on all the way here at the other end of the world, this connection is being made. And then, of course, Danny's reaction is that she doesn't want to think about that, she doesn't want to think about everyone, everything dying, so she's already being set up as the, as the agent of ending that apocalypse. So winter is coming even here at the opposite end of the world from Winterfell, so I love that connection there. And the potential foreshadowing therein.
2: Bingo. So I love that you guys included this in the outline. I was potentially going to spring this on you, uh, because you you brought me you brought me here to talk about the dragons and the meteors and stuff, and I was going to hit you with this. And then here's Emmett uh, stealing my thunder. But that's good though. I'm glad I'm glad that you see this here because this ghost grass is symbolizing a couple things at once. Pale as milk glass is the bones of the others, but of course, pale as milk glass is also the description of dawn. Hmm. Uh, And these stalks of of grass are taller than a man on horseback, so they're basically like a field of grass that looks like a field of dawn swords. They're eight feet tall, ten feet tall blades of grass, and they are pale as milk glass. They are also alive with light because they glow in the dark with the spirits of the damned. So there's a glow going on there. And the idea of, uh, if you picture the ghost grass as a sword that has, contains the spirit of the damned, well, now you're in El- Elric of Melnibony territory, as well as many other fantasy classics, the idea of the soul-sucking sword that imprisons people inside of it, hmm. uh, which is something that Martin plays with on the fringes. I mean, it, we, well, actually not on the fringes. Lightbringer absorbs the strength and spirit and soul of Nissa Nissa. When Zorahai stabs her. So we have this idea that Lightbringer is a soul sucking sword, you know, like all the other fantasy classics, like, uh, you know, Stormbringer of Elric of Milnibony, <laughs> uh, which was a sure. black sword, by the way. So we've got all that going on. We've got the milk glass, uh, the, I'm sorry, the ghost grass simultaneously evoking Dawn and simultaneously evoking the others. And that, of course, as Emmett was alluding to, is basically one of those symbolism merry-go-rounds where when you look at the (laughs) others, you find symbolic ties to dawn and uh, the ghost grass, and and they all just basically refer to each other. But check this out. So the others uh, are described as milk-white and sword-slim. So they they themselves are milky-white swords. Uh, They're swords that they hold are crystal swords. They're not exactly like Dawn. Dawn is not an other sword. It can't be, because they look different. However, the swords of the others are called, quote, pale swords, (laughs) and they are, quote, alive with moonlight. So it's very close. You have these others that are pale swords. They hold pale swords. The pale swords are alive with, instead of light, it's moonlight, but it's very close. And then... You look here and we've got ghost grass that reminds you of the others because it wants to cover the world and all life will end. That's exactly like an invasion of the others. So, And the spirits of the damned could also be language that evokes the others because hmm. obviously there's some sort of damned spirits in some sense. Uh, so, yeah, this is an unbelievable boatload of symbolism in like three sentences in one paragraph here. I uh, love this one. Yeah. Mwah well said sir oh but let's put the let's put the bird on it Uh, so the cherry on top if you will the fact that this field of ghost grass that looks like both dawn and the others the fact that it surrounds a shy is a clue about Azor Ahai coming to Westeros and having something to do with the Night's King and the creation of the others and dawn and all that stuff it all goes back to a shy and that's why a shy is surrounded by this ghost grass so I think good stuff good stuff sir
0: Yeah, I I don't have anything to add except for that. Uh, people who are listening to the podcast, you really missed out because LML was there holding the sword with both of his hands. He was doing the actual sword holding as he's describing the sword <laughs> of Dawn and the, the sword of the others. So you motherfuckers missed out, brother.
2: <laughs> well, if you, people who watch my live streams on the uh, Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel are well familiar with my pantomime and my wigs. And <laughs> see, if you guys did this on
0: camera, I would have worn a wig for you, but. Ah. <laughs> well, one, we one, live and learn. One, 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 of our, one of our goals is to do a. If we get up to three thousand dollars on Patreon a month, then we'll do a quarterly live stream. So we'll. Uh have you definitely have you that's on for one of those? For so sure.
2: nice of you guys. I do live
1: streams like every week, but that's okay. <laughs> act, li-
2: act like it's really hard. That's cool, Shh, it,
1: it, sh- buddy. You're giving away the game. We'll have you on well, in full, full regalia for those, sir, for sure.
2: Well, of course, if I if I could uh, briefly plug uh, my channel, yeah. this Sunday I'll be having a show called Between Two Weirwoods. This is a new show that I've started. It's a discussion panel show where I have on guests pick a topic. It's just like a panel at Con of Thrones or Ice and Fire Con, and we basically just have a little round table. We do it on on YouTube. Uh, it is not confined to the context of mythical astronomy, so the guests don't have to have read all my symbolism stuff. And <laughs> but they should. We can, we can talk about, like, so this Sunday, for example, we're going to have uh, Chloe and Eliana from Girls Gone Canon, nice. as well as Amanda, Crowfood's daughter, from the Disputed Lands YouTube channel, which is a new YouTube channel. And these are three very smart women uh, and very funny women that I am very lucky to have on my show. We're going to be talking about parenting or more specifically uh, the way that George Martin creates his characters with a strong eye towards their relationship with their parents and their family. And specifically, we're going to be contrasting Ned and Tywin as father figures and the mark that they leave on their various children. Hmm. Talk about Cad and Cersei and maybe Doran Martell, maybe a little uh, Balin Greyjoy you know but basically this is a bit of a meta writers angle conversation because we're exploring the way in which like i said these family bonds craft the characters and it's just such an important thing to think about because we all carry our childhood traumas with us Mm -hmm. and Martin understands that and builds that into his character so I won't go any further but that's going to be our discussion this Sunday it's going to be 3 Eastern on the Lucifer Means Light YouTube channel and that's all a long way of saying that I will eventually get you guys on there as, uh, as well of course and Pick an interesting topic, and we'll uh, stab somebody else on, and we'll, we'll go at it, Stannis.
1: Stannis. <laughs> Stannis. just exactly. throw it out. Just throw it out. I mean, there's only there's only one true topic. But yeah, that sounds ex- really exciting. Uh, Chloe, Eliana, Chloe, Eliana, and uh, Amanda do great work, obviously. So everyone check that out for sure. Um, speaking of family relations and <laughs> uh, failed warriors of fire figures, obviously a lot of the most blunt foreshadowing on this chapter and reread concerns the fate of the Cart King, Viserys Targaryen. Martin does one of his classic three-fold revelation things here, where he ups the ante with Viserys in this chapter, and in Danny Four when he again violently, loudly, angrily confronts Danny, and then before finishing it off in Danny Five when he goes so far as to threaten her and her uh, unborn child, and so then uh, Drogo crowns him with gold as promised. Uh, but you have obviously the really blunt foreshadowing in this chapter for that with. Viserys declaring that if Drogo tries to cheat him, he will learn to his sorrow what it means to wake the dragon Viserys had fouled. And I love this detail. Laying a hand on his borrowed sword. So even as he's making the threat, Martin is underlining that really this is a fur without any teeth... (laughs) Viserys doesn't even have a sword. He comes off as tough here, as Joffrey does, waving around lion's tooth.
2: He might as well. He might as well have written his penis hung limply in his trousers. Like <laughs> exactly, it's,
1: it's impossible to take Viserys seriously in this moment. So Viserys so is both being set up as angry and, but also ultimately unthreatening. Uh, and you have that, of course, later in the Dothraki Sea when he's, you know, digging his hands into her and. Uh, you know, declaring that he she, he won't take orders from her. And uh, Danny, not only Danny shows him away, but then the Dothraki sh- uh, show up to uh, whip him down and ask if uh, she would have him dead. So already we have the same kind of dynamic that we will see in Danny's fifth chapter when he dies, set up that she, he attacks her and then the Dothraki step in to kind of finish him off. So you already see Martin getting that image in our heads that this is how Viserys is ultimately going to die.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just as a side note, I, I love the. Um the response that Illyrio gives to um, when Viserys Mm -hmm. touches the borrowed sword, where it says, uh, Illyrio had blinked at that and wished him good fortune. Like, you can imagine, like, just, (laughs) you can just imagine this scene where it's
1: like, all right, dude. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. Good fucking luck with that, man. Illyrio swallows a thousand insults and just says, good luck. Good luck, kid. This is true. And then uh, in that same scene, we have uh, some strong foreshadowing of which Targaryen Jorah is going to choose in the end. Uh, when Viserys, of course, orders Mormont to attack the Dothraki dogs and, and teach her a brutal lesson, and uh, Jorah chooses her, saying he shall walk Khaleesi and, and taking Viserys' horse away. Not only that he'll choose Danny, he'll reject Viserys, because we see that in uh, Jorah describing Viserys as less than the shadow of the snake, but sp- specifically that he's going to join Danny in response. And this is where we already mm-hmm. see that dynamic developing, where he's going to be the first of her Queen's Guard and regard her as not just someone he's hitching a ride with back to Westeros. But as the true monarch, even though, as you said, Jeff, he fought against Rhaegar and the Trident. He kind of finds, refines re- an ideology, and refines a monarch to care about in Danny, and we see the seeds for that being laid in this chapter for sure. Yeah, definitely.
0: It, it, but it always, it always strikes me too that even in these scenes where Jorah is giving Danny good advice and at least giving her something to think about, that he's still a spy. For Robert for Varas. So I, I do kind of wonder at his psychology here, and this is kind of getting back to a point that you had brought up earlier, and that it almost seems like Jorah would have been a great point of view character to find out what's going on in his head. Does he feel guilty? And that's and he's starting to fall in love with Danny because that's something that gets explored more in depth in Clash and then a Storm of Swords. But at the same time, he's also informing on her. He he prays for home. It almost feels like to me that if you read between the lines, that he's countering and balancing his stated advice and stated affection for Daenerys with his desire to go home and still sending messages back to Illyrio. That's how Varys gets word that Daenerys is pregnant later on, is is through messages that Jorah sends back home with him. So I do kind of wonder at the psychology of what's going on in Jorah's head as he's making these proclamations and then talking and praying about home.
2: Well, you can see there was a clear turning point between whenever he told Varys that she was pregnant to the moment in the market where he realizes that someone's going to try to kill her and then runs back to save her. Uh, So it could be that at that point, he was simply conflicted and wasn't ready to say goodbye to Danny, wasn't sure what he was going to do, and simply acted, and continued to sort of keep both options open for a little while longer. Or he may have thought that the best way to keep Danny safe was for him to keep pretending like he was the dupe of uh, Varys and continue to send information that maybe wasn't as harmful or as damaging, uh, but we'll never know. We're left to wonder exactly where, how that dynamic played out in Jorah's head. We won't know, yeah. and that's the kind of thing is that Danny doesn't know either, and so George is forcing us to
1: make the same
2: evaluation of Jorah that Danny does.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it does put us in Danny's shoes as far as Jorah is concerned. I think that's that's a really good point. And the, the final bit of major foreshadowing that comes up in Danny 3, Game of Thrones, is an image we've talked about before with Daenerys' character. The image of, it was King's Landing and the Great Red Keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. This is in her mind's eye. It was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye, they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. So obviously this evokes a couple things. This is the moment when she really takes hold of Targaryen restoration as something that she's going to be responsible for. It's a connection to her one innocent home of youth when she said in her mind's eye all the doors were red. Uh, but of course the way she's describing it makes it sound like these places are on fire. <laughs> and so this this has been something that many people have taken as an, an image that suggests that when Daini actually does come home to Dragonstone and King's Landing that she's going to be uh, coming at least in part as a conqueror and that there's going to be uh, some fire and blood shenanigans going on when she first sets foot on the continent she's been longing for.
0: Yes, and it's interesting because this kind of ties back to one of the questions that opened up this podcast is what's going to happen when Daenerys comes to Westeros and comes to King's Landing if we can imagine what Danny's arc is going to be after the end of A Dance of Dragons it seems very bent on this fire and blood mentality first bringing it to the Dothraki then potentially to the Yunkai and their allies on over to Volantis and potentially Pentos as well so, and my, my take is that what happens when Dany arrives in Westeros is that she will use Fire and Blood, the dragon fire, to win her throne. But that's going to have significant consequences because as we've talked about in King's Landing, King's Landing is brimming with wildfire. It is stored under, the, uh, under all of these places in the city itself, under the Great Sept of Baelor, under the Red Keep, under all of the homes of the small folk that are there in Fleet Bottom in the harbor. Everywhere there's wildfire that Aerys Targaryen had stored there in preparation for the his eventual, what he believed would be his funeral pyre, in which he would rise as a dragon at the end of uh, Robert's Rebellion, or, or so Jaime would have us believe. What happens when Danny arrives there and she uses dragon fire to potentially neutralize the threat of the Lannisters or the threat of Aegon or whoever's holding King's Landing at that time? It's a really... Interesting question because something that comes up in Clash is that grant is that Pyromancer Helene tells Tyrion that the power of the wildfire is increasing in such a way that hasn't been seen since the dragons were around. So the reader's most immediately go, huh. So the power is growing with the wildfire when the dragons were around. Well wait, there are dragons, they're back. The dragons are back because Daenerys Targaryen has dragons. What happens when the dragons get close to King's Landing when the dragons are there on top of all of the wildfire and Danny just decides to use dragon fire to take out our enemies. What happens to King's Landing? And I I think my take is that we're going to see a potential wildfire explosion all over King's Landing called a nuking of King's Landing. And that shit is going to be fierce. And in my mind to kind of wrap it all up, I think that will ultimately be the thing that will Forced Daenerys Targaryen to realize that maybe she's made some mistakes along the way, and that her redemption will be in the the fight against the Second Long Night, the the great with the others coming south of the Wall.
2: Well, it would be it would be poetic if the Iron Throne was essentially destroyed, you know, or buried, you know, because yes. it's the symbol of that that uh, you know lust for power that she's eventually seems foreshadowed to set aside in favor of the greater good and a mission against the others. So that kind of makes sense, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of symbolism with that. And what I guess we'll we'll see as their as arc progresses. And, um, you know, one of the things that Martin has said is that all of that wildfire was not all secured by Tyrion and by Cersei in Clash. No, and of course not.
2: Of course not. Of course there. they didn't get them all. No, there's some there, of course. I mean, I could even picture like uh, Aegon having triumphed over Cersei and Cersei's in the dungeon. Uh, but some Lannister yeah, yeah. Loyal to, lo- loyalists come back and, and blow that shit up at some point. But <laughs> yeah, I like the Danny idea. That's cool. Um, so something you just said uh, touched, uh, touched on what we were talking about earlier where danny has got to wrestle with this idea of uh, how to rule justly, what it's going to be like if she unleashes the Dothraki on Westeros, uh, what it's like when she unleashes the dragons. Am I a monster? Are, the, are these monsters? Am I the mother of monsters? So we talked about you're going to like this. This is a case of the symbolism reinforcing the heart and conflict. So we I'm talked ready. about that ghost grass that's going to cover the world like an invasion of the others. And they look like uh, milk glass blades that glow with ghost light. So it makes you think of the other swords as well as dawn. Uh, and it's, they kill everything. So that's what the Dothraki fear. However, the Dothraki prophecy of the stallion who mounts the world makes the Dothraki sound just like the others. So listen to this passage. Uh, The thunder of his hooves, the others chorused. As swift as the wind he rides, and behind him his calasar covers the earth, men without number, with aurochs shining in in their hands like the blades of razor grass. Fierce as a storm this prince will be. His enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and the milkmen in their stone tents will fear his name. The old woman trembled and looked at Danny almost as if she were afraid. The prince is riding, and he shall be the stallion who mounts the world. So... Obviously, you can see the beginning of it. The Dothraki now are covering the world. And the Dothraki have shining blades of razor grass instead of shining blades of of ghost grass. I Hmm. mean, it's almost the same language. Then it says, you know, this is the stallion who mounts the world and fierce as a storm he will be. The thing is the others are connected to lightning and storm symbolism. In the prologue, if you remember, Waymar's broken sword is twisted like a tree struck by lightning. Hmm. And lightning is a very important fire of the gods symbol uh, that is tied to the others in in many places. And of course, lightning is blue. It's the kind of fire, if you will, not exactly fire, <laughs> but causes fires. That's blue. So it kind of makes sense to associate it with the others. And the, the tie into the plot is that uh, you know Danny is going to be unleashing this kalasar on, potentially, or at least she's thinking about it at this point, on Westeros, and does that make her the monster? Is she then going to be just as bad as an invasion of others? Because here, the invasion of the Dothraki sounds like an invasion of others, so,
1: there you go. Well, not to invite you to keep rambling, sir, but that brings us to the main event uh, of the episode, which is where we start getting into what this chapter uh, means, really for the metaphysical backdrop of the entire story and the history of the Azor Ahai mythos and The Long Night. If you haven't read LML's stuff, which, first of all, shame on you, but if you've read his <laughs> essays or listened to his videos, you know that this chapter is is uh, really key to a lot of the stuff he talks about, in particular, the scene, the the story that Danny is told about the moon cracking in the heat and uh, giving rise to a thousand thousand dragons. So, with that, LML, good sir, take us away. What's that story all about? Well, so, I'm almost wondering... Would it be
2: more fun to see how well you can retell my theory, Emmett, in like two minutes? <laughs> would, that, would that be too drunk
1: for you? <laughs> I would I would. I would feel terribly ashamed of all that I left out. Um, but but from, from what I've gathered from your work, sir, it's, it's if you take this image particular in combination with the image from Davos 1, A Clash of Kings, where Nissa Nissa's cry of agony and ecstasy as Azor Ahai stabs Lightbringer through her heart is said to have cracked the face of the moon... And if you put those two images together, you can start seeing a link uh, between uh, catastrophic natural events like the Long Night, perhaps including the Long Night, and the Azor high mythos and the creation of Lightbringer and the Sacrifice of Nissa and Nissa. And when you put those two things together, uh, you start seeing that these uh, interpersonal uh, struggles, events like the Sacrifice of Nissa and Nissa are connected to, representative of, symbolic of, all of these things of vast natural events, astronomical events, and that uh, when you put these two things together, you start seeing Martin's magical backdrop and how the individual character is going to interact with it. Is that close enough for a prey see, my friend? Man, my theory is sounding better by the minute. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: no, that's actually a great,
2: great jumping-off point. That's exactly right. Um, the first thing, I mean, the details of the thing are great, but I always start with the broad strokes. It's like, look at the myth. The myth is talking about Azor Ahai's forging lightbringer during the long night, but what happened up in the sky? Well, the moon just cracked when Nissa Nissa screamed out. So we know that when you think about, you know, things like the flood myth, like the biblical flood myth, which turns out to be also the Sumerian flood myth and also the flood myth that everyone turns out to have well, it's not just a fable. It turns out that during the end of the last ice age, oh, about 7, 10, 12,000 years ago, there was a lot of global flooding because the sea level rose about 300 feet over the course of uh, five or 6,000 years as the ice sheets melted down. There was also localized Massive floods when a, a, an ice sheet would form a glacial meltwater lake on top that would suddenly break through and flood the entire, let's say, Great Plains or the Indian subcontinent melting off of the, you know, the Nepalese, the Himalayas. Uh, so this, the basic idea is that mankind has always looked at natural disasters and mythicized them. You know, this isn't just a hurricane, it's the wrath of the storm god. And this wasn't just mm. uh, the destabilization of the ice sheets; it was the wrath of God to punish the wicked wickedness of mankind. And so we see this Azor Ahai myth. We see the moon cracking. It's not something you should just brush aside. Uh, but the real clincher is that in this myth of the second moon wandering too close to the sun, that Doria tells Danny in this chapter. Well, we've also got a moon cracking. And when you've got two myths talking about a cracking moon. Now it's kind of like finding multiple flood myths around the real world. You start to say, well, maybe (laughs) there was a fucking flood. You know, maybe this isn't just a fairy tale. Same thing here. This is the first thought I had was, well, we've got two myths about a moon cracking. We've got a long night that has a mysterious explanation. And then one of these myths has dragons pouring forth from the moon after it cracks open like an egg. And of course, dragons are a mythological way to describe meteors and comets going back thousands of years. Multiple cultures around the world have thought of this idea to depict comets and meteors as either flying snakes or flying dragons. They breathe fire, they fly through the air, they land with a boom, they're terrible, they cause destruction. It's really easy to figure out how that works. Um, And they also look like sort of like a flaming sword when they're up in the sky too. So we've got this... We've got this one myth about the moon cracking and dragons are pouring forth. We've got another myth about the moon cracking and a flaming sword appears. And we've got uh, a comet that features in the Azor High Reborn Prophecy to make us think about comets and dragons being connected to each other. And so you start to realize that when you have this myth about dragons coming out of a moon that cracked open, this could be a mythological way to describe some sort of mysterious celestial cataclysm which resulted in meteors falling down to the planet, and of course, when you're looking for a way to block the skies from sunlight for several years and create a long night, there's basically only three mechanisms that can accomplish that. There's a nuclear winter brought on by a nuclear weapon. Uh, none of us here described to the or subscribed to the a song of bison fire is <laughs> secretly post-apocalyptic uh, science fiction or something, so that's nope. out. Uh, It could have been a supermassive volcano, but we have a supermassive multiple volcano eruption in the recent past. It did not cause a long night, so I don't think that's the cause, but... We've got this myth about moon cracking, and we've got meteors. And then as you start to look around in the ancient myths of the world, you find meteors all over the place. The Bloodstone Emperor, who coincidentally ruled in the East during the Long Night, worshipped a black stone that's right out of a Lovecraft story. This is basically the shining trapehedron right here. Uh, And this this is a black meteor that fell around the time of the Long Night. So we've got the idea of meteors during this time, when the moon cracked and then we've got dawn which is obviously a sword legend says is made from a fallen star and all of its symbolism points towards lightbringer uh, with all the venus <laughs> mythology of bringing the day and bringing the light and all that stuff so there's there's obvious meteor myths then there's things like the hammer of the waters that could be explained by a meteor attack and uh, our meteor impact i guess i should say it's not like <laughs> Martian it's attacks. attack no oh, it's a Martian <laughs> attack yeah totally it's basically the same thing but uh, then there's the sea dragon In the Iron Islands mythology, if a comet is a dragon, then a sea dragon who, quote, drowns whole islands in its wrath might just be a meteor that lands in the ocean and causes tidal waves that then flood the land, which is exactly what would happen if a meteor landed offshore somewhere. So that's, that's the basics of the thing. As you see these myths, you see the moon cracking, you see dragons pouring forth. We know that we're looking for the cause of the long night. And the cause of the long night is a basic mystery of the books that Martin obviously intends on revealing at some point. What's the point of beating around the bush and making it such a big mystery if you're not going to explain it? And yes. any good theory, as people like to say, any good theory that's central to the story should have a lot of evidence in the first book, Right. And mm-hmm. this theory can be completely laid out in the first book, which is great. So all will let so, you go ahead, get in there.
0: No. So here's here's a question for you. We know that in 2020, perhaps 2021, we're going to get the Age of Heroes show in which Martin has said, and I, I know you guys did your live cast on it and I did listen to part of it. I didn't listen to all of it. My mm-hmm. apologies. I'll, You're, I'll forgiven. Get You're forgiven. You're forgiven. I appreciate that. I like forgiveness. Um, Spare me your empty promises, though. <laughs> but Martin has said that the the title that he has suggested for the show is "The Long Night." So we we can be 100 percent sure at this point that a Dream of Spring is not going to come out by 2021, <laughs> unless by some miracle, but which is not going to happen. Do you are you excited for that possibility that your theory might come into being in the show, it might be depicted here? Because I think. I think when I read your theory first a few years ago, it was the thing, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, when you've either read some sort of theory about whatever, if it's a Song of Ice and Fire, if it's about history or or whatnot. I do a lot of history, theory reading, um, but but before I went to a Song of Ice and Fire and started doing more theory reading and theory writing for a Song of Ice and Fire, but your theory was... Kind of blew my mind Because I felt like That at last That I had finally found The answer to a mystery That was out there So Are you excited Maybe even nervous About the Age of Heroes show When it comes out In a few years About whether it's going to Depict the Long Night As you've theorized And, and have looked at All of the foreshadowing That Martin has built into A Song of Ice and Fire About the Advent of the Long Night And what came of it To me
2: um, uh, I'm not Okay So that's a great question, and (laughs) I think that's, let me start off with a book reading. Uh, He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand, thousand dragons poured forth, drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. So there is this idea that whatever happened before is going to happen again. Uh, and yes, Danny's dragons have returned, and the comet did come back. However, that didn't cause the Long Night. We still need a new Long Night. Something has to cause it. Uh, if meteor attacks caused the first Long Night, sticking with the meteor attack phrase, um, then it's <laughs> it seems logical that meteor attacks would cause the new Long Night. After all, what's the point of hiding this clever mystery about an ancient meteor attack in the story if you're not going to have some big fucking payoff at the end? And if you've Created a mechanism to cause a long night Which is a meteor attack Why would you invent an entirely new mechanism To cause the new long night The only, the logical thing is that If it happened in the past Indeed the other moon will one day kiss the sun And it will crack and the dragons will return And those dragons will be Meteor dragons huh. So that is, I, that is A long way of saying that I think T-Wow Is going to give us this answer Before the show ever comes out because the, Interesting. the new long night should fall in Wow. either halfway through to the end, somewhere in there, we need to see the fall of the new long night, which means the meteor attack would have to happen then if it's going to happen at all. So we're going to find out from Martin himself
0: uh, if if it happens. So you're you're saying the win's winner is going to come out before the next day the Asia <laughs> of Show comes out. If, I'm, if it, I'm I'm holding you to that. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'll go with yes. Excellent. Um, One of the things I think is really interesting about the theory is, again, to tie it back to something we were talking about in the main podcast, is that it's great for this world building and it's great for building up the mythos of, of Westeros or of A Song of Ice and Fire. But it also symbolizes what we're going to find at the end of A Game of Thrones, where the heat and the funeral pyre burns and the dragon eggs that Danny has, they crack open and up comes three dragons at the end of the story. So I think that it works at both a mythological level, but it also works at the individual plot and character level for Daenerys Targaryen specifically.
2: Well, and, and that is, that is where this theory uh, begins to really come to life. So, so far I've presented this theory mostly as a logical deduction, uh, looking at myth Assuming that the myth has some root in truth. We see two myths about cracked moons. We know that meteors can be dragons. We know there's a long night. This is all logic that we're using to put this together so far. But I believe that any good theory will also find confirmation in the symbolic uh, specifics of the text and the double meanings and metaphors and stuff. And you've just touched on the thing that really drives this theory home. So we've got uh, this, we've got Danny actually gets two myths at once, all right? Uh, we, the first one grabs the attention. It's the Carthian myth about the moon is actually an egg, and it wandered too close to the sun, and it cracked open, and dragons came. Uh, but the Dothraki girls giggled and laughed. You are foolish, strawhead slave. I like that, <laughs> I like that racial slur, by the way. That's good, strawhead. Um, <laughs> Eri said, moon is no egg, moon is God, woman, wife of sun, it is known. So the Dothraki actually see the moon and the sun as a man and his wife. And this is reinforced by the nicknames that uh, Drogo and Danny use for each other. Drogo, uh, surely based on this belief, calls Danny the moon of my life. And Danny calls Drogo my sun and stars. So they're mimicking this sun and moon relationship. And this is the key, okay? So let's fast forward in time to the funeral pyre of Khal Drogo. All right. Now remember that what Dany's going to do is She's going to reenact the Carthane myth So Dany is the moon of Drogo's life So imagine Dany as symbolizing the moon Drogo's the sun, her sun and stars So imagine Drogo as the sun Now the Carthine myth states that the moon Wanders too close to the sun And gets burned from the heat And that's when dragons crack open out of their egg So Drogo is the sun and his funeral pyre is the fire of the sun. Danny is the moon. <laughs> she literally wanders into the py- into the pyre, into the sun's fire, and that is when the dragon eggs crack. And instead of a thousand thousand dragons, we get three dragons because mythology is <laughs> always inflated wildly and exaggerated. But uh, yes. same idea that you see. And so this is basically Danny reenacting this origin of dragons myth, while she's also. Fulfilling the prophecy of Azor Ahai reborn That we haven't even gotten yet It comes of course in the prologue Of A Clash of Kings In the next book Or is it uh, Davos 1
1: that's like chapter 7 I think it's, it's Davos 1 yeah
2: In any case we get it at the beginning of the next book We haven't gotten it yet So here we have Danny fulfilling Or mimicking this ancient tale Of the moon cracking open While fulfilling the prophecy of Azor Ahai being reborn under a bleeding star To wake dragons from stone so it's 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 this moment that I call the alchemical wedding, uh, and it's really really layered with meaning. And the final bit of it is the wedding part. So Drogo and Danny are they're obviously husband and wife, but Drogo's dead. However, Danny says that this is just like her wedding. Okay, so here's the quote now of Danny waking the dragons that where she compares it to a wedding. Ah, uh, it says. She had sensed the truth of it long ago," Danny thought, as she took a step closer to the conflagration. But the brazier had not been hot enough. The flames writhed before her like the woman who had danced the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome <laughs> to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them. Her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding, too. She thought. Miriam's door had fallen silent. The god's wife thought her a child, but children grow and children learn. So that is the wedding language. And then there's also, uh, tempering, sword tempering language that mirrors the dream, that she has, uh, that we just read earlier, where the dragon burns her with fire and her blood dissolves and all that stuff. Right? Yes, indeed. So here is the match, the mate. uh, It says... She could smell the odor of burning flesh, no different than horse flesh roasting in a fire pit. The pyre roared in the deepening dusk like some great beast, drowning out the fainter sound of Mirimazdor's screaming, and sending up long tongues of flame to lick at the belly of the night. As the smoke grew thicker, the Dothraki backed away, coughing. Huge orange gouts of fire unfurled their banners in that hellish wind, the logs hissing and cracking, glowing cinders rising on the smoke to float away in the dark like so many newborn fireflies. The heat beat at the air with great red wings driving the Dothraki back, driving off even Mormont but Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon and the fire was inside her. Okay, so that quote was good but here's here's the one I was actually looking for. Um, that one just kind of sets this one up so, And now the flames reached her Drogo, and now they were all around him. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the cow was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. Danny's lips parted, and she found herself holding her breath. Part of her wanted to go to him, as Sir Jorah had feared, to rush into the flames to beg for his forgiveness and take him inside her one last time, the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever." So that language is very similar to the dragon roasting her in the dream, where it melted the flesh from her bones, and it was tempering her like a sword. And here she's almost like fusing. She's thinking about melding with Drogo, her son character. And this is another call-out to the Carthian myth, where it says the moon wandered too close to the sun, and then those moon dragons drank the fire of the sun. And that's why dragons breathe flame. So, you get this idea of the sun, the fire of the sun, and the moon rock combining to give us flaming rocks, basically. It's fire, <laughs> it's the moon plus the sun together that creates this thing. And that's why there's this wedding language and the tempering language. So, it's a multifaceted beast that's going on here. Uh, but the wedding language is important Because the sun and moon are a man and wife And there's a whole other aspect To the forging of Lightbringer myth That alludes to a child Instead of Lightbringer So imagine Azor High Instead of stabbing Nissa with his sword He's stabbing Nissa with his sword and, ah, and, and, the, and the result is a special baby Like say Jon Snow for example
1: Excellent stuff, sir. It's such tantalizing imagery, and it makes me think it's how much it's going to be ramped up to Eleven with Dany and Winds of Winter, because now, of course, she's returned to the Dothraki Sea. She's gone through a kind of cleansing experience the end of a dance with dragons. She's refocusing on her identity and her Targaryen heritage, which go hand-in-hand hand with the warrior of light mythology and imagery. So I think we're going to, I imagine, be seeing a lot more of this stuff when the, when the Dothraki... When the Dosh Kalin name her the stallion who mounts the world, as you're just pointing out, have that has resonances with the Azor Ahai mythos and with the others. So presumably Martin's going to be relying on this same kind of imagery there. When she goes to Valantis and the Red Priests proclaim her Azor Ahai reborn at the Red Temple, Martin's already set up the Red Temple as a kind of, like Dragonstone, an emblematic image for this kind of fire built within stone uh, set of ideas. So obviously we're going to see it there. I assume we're going to see it when Danny returns to Dragonstone when she, uh, you know, proclaims herself Queen of Westeros. So as exciting as all this stuff is, what makes it even more exciting for me is to think that all of this is, all this is just prologue. All this is even groundwork for Danny's true apotheosis, which is really yet to come over the course of *Winds and Dream. So that leaves me extremely excited for the kind of imagery Martin's going to wrestle with, and also. Yes. Understanding of why it takes that much time to to pay off all this kind of stuff he's been setting up so wonderfully. He knows he has to stick the landing, so I would be rewriting it over and over again too.
2: So, so check this out. There's a you just mentioned the Dothraki Sea, uh, and Illyrio has this line where he talks about you know the weak you know person that that she came to me as died on the Dothraki Sea, and Danny was reborn as a true dragon. So we've got this reborn in the Dothraki Sea idea. Check this out in a Storm of Swords. Stannis drops a little nugget, a little different version of the Azor Ahai prophecy that we don't hear anywhere else, and obviously he's picked this up from Melisandre, but he's, he's speaking offhandedly to Davos, and he says, He may be the best boy who ever drew breath, and it would not matter. My duty is to the realm. His hand swept across the painted table. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea. Living dragons hatched from dead stone. Hmm. So a hero reborn in the sea. That's interesting because Danny is reborn in the sea. But of course, it's one of those ones where George talks about how prophecy will bite your prick off because of the sign of the dragon or something on an inn. There was, right?
0: Yes. You guys know that? Can you tell that story? It's essentially a, a legend. It didn't actually happen most likely, but during the Wars of the Roses, there was a knight who had heard that he would die at this certain castle the certain location so he avoided that castle or location all of his life but he ends up going to this bar this inn, this tavern which has a sign of the castle or the the town of the location and he dies there so he dies right. there so it's, it's kind of like a the, the idea being that prophecy will come around and get you one way or the other it's, it's sort of the same thing that we get you know in a clash of kings where melisandre has the vision that renly will come and slay, St- defeat Stannis on the battlefield. Well, it's not Renly, it's actually Garland Tyrell and Renly's right. armor that comes and defeats Stannis right. on at, at the Blackwater. So this could
2: be that kind of thing, essentially. Danny is reborn from the sea, and that's where she hatched the dragons from stone. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and then the other thing that's cool is that in this chapter of the dream, uh, or of the... the The one that we're dealing with, where Danny gets this prophecy of the second, not prophecy, I'm sorry. Legend. The legend of the second moon wandering too close to the sun and pouring forth a thousand thousand dragons. There's other clues about that in this chapter. Uh, For example, when her dragon's egg is struck by the sunlight, meaning it drinks the light of the sun, just like the moon drank the fire of the sun. And then it says a thousand scarlet droplets of flame shimmered in the air for a moment. You read the quote earlier. And that's That's the same imagery as a thousand fiery things coming from a dragon egg. It's the same idea as a thousand dragons coming from a moon that's like an egg. So, And then, of course, we have Dragonstone with a thousand fiery lights in the windows. It's the same idea. What is a (laughs) Dragonstone? That's another way to describe the eggs, which are stone. They're stone dragons. When there's all this waking dragons from stone, it's a big deal. The, the eggs are dragon stones. Here you have a place called Dragon Stone, and look, it burns with a thousand fiery lights. So, and it says all the doors were red. The thing is that the red door, there's a red door in Dragonstone. It's the one that Davos walks through, or not, sorry, not Davos, Crescent. When he walks through to confront Melisandre, he walks through a big red door, and it says he walked into the dragon's maw so the red door is like a dragon's maw and the it represents fire and blood just like huh. just think about it i mean danny's thinking the red door represents home for her she's seeing dragonstone as home so what is that's that's a symbol that like danny is a dragon fire and blood is her home and so this is this is where it comes from and then the other thing is uh when davos is there on dragonstone in a different chapter He looks at all the campfires and it says it looks like a field of stars had fallen to earth. And that's right at Dragonstone 2. So Martin is constantly teasing you with this idea that a dragon egg or a dragonstone can give you a thousand fiery things. And the motif is all over the place. It's twice in this chapter aside from the actual prophecy. And then it's reinforced strategically elsewhere.
1: And you constantly get the motif of even as you get access to these stories and access to this power that it's still difficult to control them. You have the great Dalla line about... Sorcery being a sword without a hilt, and there's no safe way to control it. So even as we tremble with excitement before this kind of power that Danny is starting to get access to, even as we cheer her on for her self control and self actualization, the flip side of that is being terrified about you know what mere mortals can do with that power and what they do with that power when their drive becomes power itself. So that's something obviously we're going to watch for with Danny going forward. Yep. She she
2: wants. She says, "Mother of dragons, mother of monsters. You know, if they're a monster, so am I." Yes, yep. so she's grappling with that this is.
1: all the time. That yeah. is that perilous coin that the gods will flip, to uh, borrow that quote from her grandfather, Jaharis. So, terrific stuff as always, sir. Again, if you haven't uh, checked out LML's essays and videos on this, I assure you that was just a tease. He goes into much further detail <laughs> across many
2: more chapters. I will say, um, you know, I before when we were talking pre-show, I said that this was going to kind of ruin... The actual last chapter where the, she hatches the dragons, because we're going to talk about so much of it here today. The thing is, there is actually a ton more that's there in the specific symbolic language, so if you guys want to have me back on for that episode, not to invite myself back or anything, but uh, uh, yeah. there is more to talk about there, for sure.
1: We will absolutely, absolutely have true. you back for, plenty. That, for that episode. That's yeah. a great chapter. There's tons to discuss. So thank you again, sir, for, for joining us. A pleasure as always, LMO. You want to Run down your uh, contact details where people can find your stuff.
2: Uh, I gave a pretty good plug earlier uh, for this Sunday's live stream, but you can find that at the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. And again, that's uh, 3 o'clock Eastern this Sunday. I'll be live streaming with Chloe and Eliana from Girls Gone Cannon and Amanda from uh, the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. And my blog is at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. I've got a Patreon. If you like what I do, of course, you can sign up and support me. But before you do that, you might just want to go and read them if you haven't uh, read or listened to the podcast. So if any of my uh, psychobabble has sounded interesting to you today, then by all means, check out the podcast. I guess I should say that uh, if you're looking for it on iTunes, it's called The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Everywhere else, all you have to do is put in Lucifer Means Lightbringer and you'll find all my stuff. So, thanks for having me on. Like I said, I'll get you guys on uh, Between Two
0: Weirdwoods sometime soon here. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, man. We look forward to being there. Yeah, absolutely. And you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Acast, Patreon as well, all those good places as well. Our patrons, we always say, is at patreon.com forward slash ASOF. Our email is notacastasof at gmail.com, and our Twitter is at notacastasof. Personally, you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, And you
1: can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. You can join us next time, guys, as we return to Winterfell, where we haven't been there in a hot minute, for Brand Four, where we're introduced to the Three Eyed Crow whose identity, of course, is subject to much debate, but we all know him to be old man. (laughs) Canonical, folks. (laughs) What an ending. (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody.
0: Karma
1: police.